Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. Just on one weather-related story, they're saying that around the world, the month of September was the hottest on record ever across the globe. We mightn't have thought it across the Irish summer, but apparently September around the world, hottest on record. Now, um, sometimes you are just surrounded by information and you end up with information overload. And that certainly seems to be the way with coronavirus that dominates all of the newspapers. There are, thankfully, some other other news stories, but the dominance of COVID is still there. Like this morning, this, the mail is telling us that there's just 27 ICU beds that are now free in Ireland as of 8 p.m. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, and they detail the different hospitals. Uh, unfortunately, we don't get a figure for Cork in their report, but there it is nonetheless, just 27 beds now. An overnight story making independent.ie, um, their headline, and these are the kind of inflammatory headlines that would bother you. Christmas could be cancelled as COVID surges across the nation and more and more medics are urging a move to level four. There may be more and more medics urging a move to level four, but there's an equal amount of medics and professors who say that lockdown doesn't work, I can tell you. The Mail this morning says that Tony Houlihan is more worried than he was before the weekend. And he says the situation is worse now than when he advised of level five lockdown at the weekend. Um, uh, Neffet say we can still save Christmas, according to the Mail. So see how newspapers, uh, you know, can really change the public's perspective of a story. Uh, one saying we can save it, another one saying could be cancelled. Uh, this morning uh, in the UK, the English Mail edition is saying, when will they listen? Uh, when will the medics in the UK listen? They have a major study now which reveals that COVID rules may actually be increasing deaths and that eight in 10 people with the virus have no symptoms whatsoever. And they're talking about tighter measures and the fact that they have not helped in many, many, many northern towns where there have been an awful lot of restrictions imposed. And the Mail in the UK this morning is saying, for Britain's sake, so when will they listen? As in, when will the government listen and when will medical experts listen? So you see how divisive this has become. Um, then, of course, we have the off-licenses with the examiner this morning saying that the uncontrolled consumption of alcohol at parties is contributing uh, to the spread of the virus. Because this is where they're talking about the proposal to limit drink sales. But some are saying that that in itself then will lead to um, people uh, getting alcohol in other places. Like, for instance, Des Cahal uh, this morning is saying it's bonkers. Um, to have uh, a suggestion that off-licenses should have their hours curtailed because he says then people will just purchase alcohol from other sources like buying slabs of beer and maybe six or eight or ten bottles of wine in a supermarket or something like that. But in Scotland, they were going, they're going to ban alcohol sales inside pubs and cafes. Two areas that are really worrying now at the moment, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland's figures are higher on a daily basis than the Republic, and that's a worry for us. Uh, the mayor this morning says docs are urging the public to do the right thing for the next three weeks. And the examiner is saying uh, that the way things are going, by the back end of October and early November, unless people... Uh, you know, double down, we'll have 1,400 cases a day in the first week in November. So you see what I mean with regards to information overload. Uh, To Hell or to Fonacht is a super front page headline in the Star today. To Hell or to Fonacht. Fonacht, of course, is the Garda operation to please encourage people and ask them to turn back at borders. But it led to an awful lot of gridlock yesterday, apparently. And unfortunately, uh, the Garda are saying... 
maybe gridlock could really drive the message in uh, to people's heads. Uh, they said that they don't want to be uh, looking at tailbacks of 5, 10, 15 kilometers, but it's inevitable just to get the message in. There's photographs in the Echo this morning of outdoor dining on Leaside, uh, and they have a photograph from Princess Street, which was the most successful example of outdoor dining that I've ever seen on Leaside, and we want more of that. But hospitality now is struggling uh, and grappling with the changeovers. And the government will regret not going to level four or indeed even level five, according to UCC professor of biochemistry, Tom Cotter. And he makes this morning's echo today. Mind you, many, many families are saying, please don't lock down our loved ones again. And we've had COVID cases making the papers again this morning with the mail talking about a nursing home in Donegal, another one in Leash, another one in Tipperary, and indeed Care Choice Nursing Home in Montanotti, confirming at least one case after testing uh, last month and uh, 61 new COVID cases this week in nursing homes alone. Um, There are, uh, of course, international COVID stories, including Donald Trump. He says, I'm blessed. He says it could well have been a gift from God. And what he got from the doctors and the medics, he's going to give to all Americans and he's going to give it to them for free, he says. Uh, There are other stories, of course, that are not COVID related, but you can connect this to COVID and that is the satisfaction levels of the parties. It's the front page in the Irish Times they're all down. Uh, the government is down. Leo Varadkar is down. Mary Lou is down. Michal Martin is down. And Eamon Ryan is down. There's no growth whatsoever, it would seem. Um, but uh, government satisfaction levels dropping significantly as the panic pandemic takes its toll and takes a hold again. Um, pensioners who are forced to spend more time at home uh, over the winter months because of all of this will get an increase in their heating allowance in the budget next week. And that's got to be a good thing. And there are a lot of interesting colliery stories. We're doing a yesterday wondering how many people actually started their Christmas shopping. The Mail says this morning that three quarters of parents have started Christmas shopping because their fear is that stores will close or stocks will just dry up in the event of a level five uh, lockdown. And sad news this morning with the death announced of Johnny Nash, the man who had the huge number one hit with I Can See Clearly Now um, and uh, he's died at the age of 80. He just... uh, Fell in love with reggae, apparently, originally when he moved to Jamaica from the U.S. in the 60s. And he went on to have a whole string of hits and his uh, announcement of his passing this morning makes the newspapers. Lines are open at one 104 106 You know, I was talking yesterday about sandwiches and I get, didn't get a chance to come back to sandwiches yesterday and I will do. But also they're talking about where sandwiches came from. The first one, the most popular sandwich, cheese toasties, cheese and ham toasties, and the, and the you know, simple things like a cheese sandwich. Uh, but apparently now uh, they've done more research with regards to the deli favorites. And apparently it's a chicken fillet roll. When it comes to what people order most at the deli, the chicken fillet roll, apparently. Uh, for me, there's nothing nicer, actually, uh, than a warm chicken roll with cheese and potato salad, black pepper and salt. Try it. The Neil Prenderville Show. All right, your lines are open. You can text 0868-104-106. You can pick up the phone on one 104 Let's plough on into the morning and see how we get on. Round about quarter, it's around about quarter past 20 past 10 this morning. I will talk with uh, Marie Cassidy, who was for many years in Ireland, the forensic state pathologist for the entire uh, country. Um, in fact, she retired uh, some time ago and has written a new book, uh, which I read over the past couple of days, and I'll be chatting with her. I hope you'll stay listening for that and lots more besides. Sally, good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm good. There's a story in the papers this morning saying, don't lock our loved ones in homes again. Don't lock them down in care facilities. You'd go along with that, wouldn't you? 
Oh, definitely 100%. Uh, Your story is a very sad one, yeah. Sally. Will you share it with us? Oh, I will, of course. Um, my daughter, um, she got a rare type of Parkinson's disease. When she, I'm sorry, I'm very nervous. Your grand girl. Just, just chat <laughs> as if you're only chatting away to me. <laughs> but uh, she got a rare type of Parkinson's when she was 17, just when she was about doing her leaving search. Yeah. And um, it progressed very fast and it stayed well, ongoing test they found out it was a, 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 an abnormal gene she had yeah so it has left her in a care home under 24 hour care she can't eat uh, and can I just can I just ask you she yeah. got this rare form of this rare strain of Parkinson's yes. at 17 and was was the Parkinson's was it was it rapid oh very rapid very, very rapid like they they gave her Parkinson's medication and it would work for a few days or a couple of weeks and she'd be up and she'd be walking and talking and then it would automatically she'd go back and shut, her whole body would shut down again, you know? I know, I know. So, and and um, what's, and did she give up education? Did she not get an opportunity to go to college or anything like that? She, I actually walked over, she was say, just say registered, she registered for St. John's College to do animal care, you know, she wanted to become a veterinary nurse. Yeah. So um, she actually registered, but unfortunately she had to pull out of it. You know, she never even got to do her first day. She got too sick. She had to go to the Metro Hospital in Dublin. Yeah. And were you her carer for a long period of time? Yeah, myself and my daughter, you know, and uh, her dad as well. But myself and uh, her sister, you know, were her main carers. Ah, I know. And did her condition worsen then, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very rapidly, you know. And uh, her speech went, and um, she needs to be tube fed. So, um, and by what age know. was and by what age was all of that happening? Well, um, she she started showing symptoms about seventeen, and I'd say about say twenty one. Her balance was going; she was falling. Her speech was starting to go. It would remind you actually of motor neuron disease. Do you know how rapidly, you know, it did progress. And was she asking, why is this happening to me, ma'am? Oh, she she was. She was indeed, you know, and she'd go to the neurologist and she'd ask for help and why is this happening? And, you know, and they had no answers for her because she was so young and it wasn't responding to medication like the typical Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, when they did genetic testing when she was in her twenties, they found it was in the normal gene she had. Very aggressive then, mimicking, obviously. Yeah. And they couldn't and it, arrest it. Was it. Mimicking, yeah, it was mm. mimicking uh, Parkinson's. All right, I know, but that's you where know? you found yourself at. That's where you found yes, yourself at. Yes. And at what stage then did she go into a care home? Was she like oh, bent in from time to time respite first, I suppose, was it? Oh, she, yes, she did, yes. And uh, she was in um, another place for independent living. But that did no good because as a progress, you know, she couldn't do anything for herself. You know, so um, it, it just ended up that she needed uh, specialist care. And uh, we went out to visit, um, she's actually, am I allowed to name this? Oh, I'm she's sure it's a fine place where she is, yeah. Oh, I'm no, sure. they are, they're absolutely brilliant. I can't fault them one bit, you know. Where is she? Uh, she's actually in Farnley Nursing Care. Oh, uh, yeah, I know it. Yeah. 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 So they actually have a special unit there for younger people. And how know, long is so she there she, now? How, how What age was she, she went there? She's there about eight years. 
And what's her condition so, like now? Is she now 33? She's 30, yeah, she was 33 actually on the 29th of September. So we were lucky they left us, they left myself and um, her sister in for an hour. And so, what's her quality yeah, of life yeah. like now? Happy birthday, incidentally, to her. Um, she was, uh, her quality of life is, she's just basically, you know, they'll get her up, they'll get her dressed. She has to be um, intravenously fed, you know. So she cannot, she, we think she, she can't understand, she can't smile. Up to the, before the lockdown, she was trying to communicate, she was kind of mumbling. Or she working about it if you put on an old song that she loves, like Dirty Dancing or things like that, you know. She actually could kind of sing to the words. I know. And was that before February and March, is it? Yes, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, that's all gone now since the lockdown, you know. It's it's crazy, you know. Because we went out um, when we were allowed to see her after a few months because the, the Zoom calling and things like that, it was actually no good because she can't speak. She can hear, and she know. Does she know what you're saying and everything? She, she does. She does. She knows what we're saying, you know. But she can't communicate. And in order to communicate properly, we have to be kind of next to see her kind of facial expressions properly. Of course, of course. If you know course. what I mean. And, and she needs. She needs interaction. And during the first lockdown, was there yeah. was there was there a long period of time when you couldn't visit? Well, it was um, March till uh, July, I think, okay. was it? And did you it see a did you see a rapid disimprovement in her? I tell you, know when the when I went out to see her, I actually got a shock. I really got a shock. No, the care home, I can't fault him in one way. They're absolutely brilliant for her, you know. But um, physically, to look at her, you know, she didn't look too bad at that stage, you know. But her face was all kind of drawn in. And, you know, she was just staring at the wall with her mouth open, you know, like an older person. Mm, mm, mm. And she, I had a mask on me going in and she heard my voice and she started crying. You oh, know, dear. so I had to kind of fight back to tears and we were saying, no, don't you start crying, oh, you know, and all this. I came up to see him outside that door for months joking, you know. I know, yeah, I know, yeah, so, Mammy, talk, course, Mammy talking to her yeah. daughter, I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so she You'll be crying when I come in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, stop that crying. <laughs> so she started laughing at that, but the hardest part is that I couldn't hug her. You know, but um, I didn't really, you know, once I could see her and talk to her, I didn't mind, you know. But the thing that's getting to me mostly is like, uh, you know, when we we could see her then for a half an hour, one person on a Friday, you know, and mm. we'd keep two meters apart. Mm. And then they increased, they increased that to two people for one hour and we could take her for a walk and we'd go down with the leaf fields, you know, for the hour and bring her back. Out in a wheelchair, I suppose, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. You know, she'd be able to go for a kind of a, a small bit of air, you know. So um, that was grand. And I could see her kind of gradually, but she, she was crying when we'd leave. And you know, the residents were telling me, you know, you know she is crying and also she was crying for hours and hours. So we, myself and... So the people in there would say to you, your daughter cries a lot. Oh, that's heartbreaking yeah, for you all, to hear. They'd be all kind of watching out for each other, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, and um, um, what have I left on my mind? Gone no, you're grand. I mean, like, it's because she found it right. Are you, are you sure that she was, that she's on antidepressants now and wasn't before? Oh, yes, because because what happened was um, she was crying for hours. So myself and the nurses spoke and I had to speak to the doctor. 
So we decided with the doctor to chance her on antidepressants because she was distressed so much from the lockdown. And, uh, you know, I think when I was leaving on a Friday, she was afraid in case I probably wouldn't come back. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. So she actually started the antidepressants on Friday and we were put back down into the stage three on Monday. Yeah. So that you know, came as a so major blow to you again then, because that... Oh, uh, my God, because I was so terrified. I said, it's not COVID is not, it's going to kill her. It's bloody heartbreak. I know, I know, I know. Do you know? I know. It's ridiculous. I mean, to say, if workers can put on PPE gear, scrub up, and go in, why can't her mother, especially if she's in a distressed state? And even in you know? even in full PPE and mask and everything, you're saying yes, yes. she'd still know you and she'd still be happy even with that. Of course she would, because she'd recognise my voice or like the mother, like stop crying, you know, you know. I know. So like I tried to contact Michal or Michal Martin, like you know, it was no, no good, you know. And it's not just Jessica, like I'm Jessica's voice; she can't speak. Would you bring in treats no. when you go in, like a cake or maybe a bag of sweets or a bottle of orange she, or something? She, I tell you, no, she can't eat, but uh, her neurologist... Is it all intravenous now? It is? Well, except for ice cream, anything that can be... Ice cream, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a bit of ice cream. Even then, with the stats were very good, especially one in particular, Mary is her name. And they say she made um, shots of ice cream for, for a birthday party. Shots. You know, <laughs> shots of ice cream. <laughs> Clever woman. Clever woman. You, know? you see, the problem now at the moment is they're reporting cases in care facilities. I mentioned Donegal, 30 cases, Leash, yeah. 21 yeah. of them, Tipperary, uh, too. And that includes um, actually staff as well. Uh, and uh, right. even Cork had, um, you know, some some confirmed cases of COVID-19 in a care home as well, you see. And that's what they're worried about, yeah. if it gets in at all, with the oh, residents. Of course, and I, I respect that. Like I the one in Port Leash, for instance, they were dealing with 31 cases. 21 of the cases were residents and 10 were staff. So you're asking yourself, how did yeah. it get in, you see? Oh, I know, but see, this is where regular testing should come in, especially in care homes, you know, with the, the workers. But what I'm saying, if a resident, if they if they find a resident that is in a distressed state psychologically and mentally from the lockdown, that if, you know if they could get one of the family members right, get tested, we will wrap you up in PPE or whatever it takes, and you know, like where Jessica is, she has a back door. You could slip in and out a back door. Like if if you're saying, I think it's what you were saying to the lads was that if 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 cleaners can go in. And out, yes, and in, yes, and out. Yes. Why, for compassionate grounds, can't a mother go into Jessica or another similar story to yours, where where your yes. da- where you're saying your daughter is just fading away? Exactly, exactly, and that's what she is. She is fading away. You know. Now she has good days for me. You know, because they'd be singing to her, and they're doing their best. You know, to keep her. You know, in a good humor. Oh, know. listen, the home are following the guidelines. That's that's what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, and you know, they they are brilliant, you know. But she hasn't seen her niece and her two little nephews since March. And my God, she's feeling it. And, you know, she used to love the visits from them. Like, we used to be out there early every day. I know. I know. You know, but you wouldn't you wouldn't be expecting to be out there every day, like no, what? What? No, no, no. I'm talking about even a half an hour a week. I suppose what people want really is any kind of a solution to this that doesn't yes. involve 
complete and utter lockdown and no access to a loved one. Yeah, exactly. Any kind of a plan at all. It, it, it's hard enough for what's after happening to my daughter and for other people that's in care homes. But it, I, I, I put myself in that situation and it's like being punished all over again, you know, for something that they haven't done. <sighs> you know? I know. It, it's like being in prison, really, you know? I know, I know. It, you know, so as I said, like, there's my daughter's on the ground floor. She has a back entrance directly into her room. So if I got into PPE gear, I wouldn't even have to enter the part of the nursing home. You know, it would just even stand at our door. I know. You know? I know. I think there are, I think there are, there are special dispensation for, for compassionate grounds, aren't there? Well, it says, I mean, I just checked it before I came on the air again. It said long term residential care facilities. Visits are suspended. And you're right there, Sally. Yeah. Apart from yeah. critical and compassionate grounds. Would yours not be on compassionate grounds? I suppose it would. But, there to, you know, they said, right, you can have a window visit. You know? Window visit. But that, 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 that's no good because she can't speak. You know, you need to be kind of, you know, face to face with her. You know, if, if you know. And when I mean. you when you when you're sitting there with Jessica, do you do all of the talking? Then is it, and she does all of the listening? Yeah, but she she has facial expressions. You and know? can you read them? Like, what would a conversation be? What would you talk about? Oh, I'd, I'd tell her all the gossip about home. <laughs> <laughs> this person is killing this person, and whatever you know. And does she react to that happy. with her with her eyes or oh, her face? Does. Yeah, she well, she can't, she can't even uh, kind of blink for once or twice, you know. But I know by her eyes, you know, she, like she kind of raises her eyebrows, you know. For, yes, you know, and she she'd laugh out loud, you know. And you know, you know by looking at her, uh, conversing with her, you know that she can understand. And is there any know? chance of improvement with all the modern medicines now? No, unfortunately, not in Jessica's case. You know, I've been on, like, um, she was on stage going back both, oh my God, five, six years ago. Yeah. I could be wrong how many years in Dublin in front of experts all over the world. It was the Movement Disorders Conference and doctors from all over the world came to us. And they said what she has is so rare that they didn't really even have a name for it or know what they were dealing with. All they knew was that it was an abnormal gene. But what makes Jessica's uh, more rare is that normally you need a gene from the mother and the father to create, you know, a disease, an abnormal gene. Yes. But she has only one of those genes, which makes it rarer again. So she, you know, they can't figure it out. But, but like, you know? I, I understand how it's impacted on you because you see... Your daughter, when she was, mm-hmm. you know, born, 5, 10, 15, 16 yeah. years old, probably very bright, with a future to look forward to. Oh, she was very intelligent, yeah. And now you see a daughter, and I don't want to upset you, but yeah. her, her mind is fine, but she's trapped. Exactly, yeah. How, how do you feel about that? Like, it must be torture for her. It's, it is torture. It's torture for everyone. It's torture for her, especially when she can't, when the communication is gone, you know, and it's, <coughs> sorry, it is very hard, you know, and sometimes I have to kind of block it out or I go insane, you know, and live in the moment, you know. I so know. I, I need to say, I need to be up four o'clock, 
from morning till to the stake, researching papers and medical papers online to see there any breakthrough, you know, and I know that Professor Luke O'Neill, they've come up with um, some sort of drugs that have to be bought, so I think, by the Roach Company for Parkinson's yeah. disease, but it's still on trial. But You'd I love to get your hands on it, though, at the same time, wouldn't you? I, I would, I would, but I don't, I think she's gone too, you know, it's after progressing too much, but hopefully for people in the future it will work. But it's like bittersweet, really. <laughs> so how do you feel about, you know, the coming weeks or perhaps months? It was devastating for you. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just worried about her mental health. Being honest, you know, as I said, it's a happy that's going to kill her, not the COVID, you know, because People. she will she will decline more, you know, because... Heartbreak will kill her, not the COVID. Yeah, people say yeah. that now more and more, don't they? That people's mental health yeah. and depression and anxiety and stress. You know, and, and you know, you see a lot of people in the residence. You know, they just they're lost. They're lost. You know, looking at them, you can see it in their eyes. You know. So I, I, I would I would hope I would hope that on p- compassionate grounds because it does say that oh. in level three it said visit suspended apart from critical and, and and compassionate grounds that yours would certainly be a compassionate case yeah yeah oh I know you know but even for the other residents you know they, they should come up with something you know because if we go into you know this long term you know they, they can't leave people like this. They They've got to come know. up with a better plan that keep pe- exactly. keeps people safe, but allows some kind of access. Not, yes, not exactly okay, for you as her mother, but more importantly for Jessica and others like her of all ages yeah. in care homes. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's not just Jessica; like it's it's for anybody in residential care. You know, it, it's it's inhumane. You know, it's inhumane. So that's it, really. You I know, know, so I know. I just, you know, so and with Christmas coming up, there, it's going to be harder again. You know, because I've never been Christmas away from my my baby. You know, no matter what age she is, she's she's always going to be my baby. She is, of course. And at, at Christmas time, would she come home normally, or would you visit her, or what? Uh, no, no, normally we bring her. See, my my house, we haven't got winter access. But my daughter's home is, so we normally bring her home for a couple of hours. Christmas Day? Yeah, on Christmas Day. And uh, there was a, a couple of times, you know, she was too sick to come home. So we brought Christmas home, we brought turkey and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> but on the, on the Christmases that she can go to your daughter's home, um, yes. can you notice that she's very excited and happy about that visit? Oh, yeah, because the whole age starts kicking all over the place. Oh, my God. The simple things. The simple things. When you hear stories like yours and Jessica's, and we worry about things that are just nonsense, you know. I mean, Uh, it's crazy. You know, I know now people have other worries as well. You know, but Jessica is my priority at the stage, not shops and restaurants. I know, I know, I know. You know, I think the government should. They, they will have to come, to, especially if this is going to be long term. They're going to have to get their their asses together. <laughs> Do you mind? Can we can we share your story with others in 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 a hope that maybe people might listen and think about coming? I know that Sage Advocacy, who advocate on behalf of uh, you know families and yeah. uh, you know residents yeah. in nursing homes, they want a better plan than the one that's just involving yeah. locking away loved ones. 
you can share with the world. Thanks, girl. All right. Listen, do stay in touch, Sally. I will, of course. Listen, thank you very much. Not at all. Thanks for taking the call. Okay. Appreciate it. Take okay. care. Bye. Anybody Bye. else in a similar situation or scenario, lads, would you like to share? one 850 Text 0868-104-106. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851-04-106. Red FM. Okay, here's an interesting one. Uh, I'm an employee of a Cork hospital um, and uh, I want to bring a serious issue to light. Actually, I'm checking with the HSE on this one. Uh, I want to bring a serious issue to light. There was a positive case with an employee in an operating theatre. There was a few members of staff socialising with this person, but management told the few employees who were in contact to get swabs. But they must work as they're short-staffed at the moment. These employees were told to take their breaks together and not enter the tea room while other staff were there. This is crazy. These people would be working all day in different operating theatres with all different groups can't come on here, but I just want to let the public know that these things are happening. Now, you are supposed to isolate and restrict your movements and get a test if you have been in contact with somebody who tested positive. And from that text, that protocol is not being followed, but we'll certainly check it. But, you know, from midnight on Friday, the 18th of September, uh, Dublin City and County was placed in level three. So um decided, uh, like I did earlier in the week, to do a quick, or at least uh, Seamus did it, a quick snapshot as to how Dublin's numbers have stacked up since then, since Friday the 18th of September. Now, some would say that it would take a week or 10 days to see any noticeable difference. Uh, but from the 18th of September up to the 7th of October, I think you will get a fairly uh, good idea as to how numbers have stacked up since they went into uh, level three and shut all of the pubs and restricted people's movements and, you know, did the business with restaurants and cafes and what. But the Dublin numbers are still all over the place. Like, for instance, on the 19th of September, uh, the day after this happened, 166, 241, 76, 174, 167, 152, 104, uh, 212, 209, 154, 189. Do you see it's all over the place? 170, 198, 224, 100, 134, uh, Tuesday, 111, and then yesterday, 218. These are all just Dublin figures. So there's not, there's not any kind of consistent drop in any way, shape or form. They're still all over the places, like yo-yoing numbers. Uh, so I just said I'd bring that to your attention because uh, that's what happened when Dublin went into level three. And in the UK at the moment now, there's an awful lot of disquiet amongst professors, scientists, doctors and government and those that advise the uh, government in the UK. Like Sky News are leading overnight that there are more and more top scientists now in the UK calling for herd immunity uh, because they think that the government's soft touch approach to this isn't working. Um, uh, other scientists are disputing these calls, you know, so you have this division there, but it's a headline in Sky this morning. Uh, top scientists calling for herd immunity approach to coronavirus pandemic by allowing people who are less vulnerable to the effects of the disease to return to normal life. Um, the BBC have even picked up on that story. Health experts join the global anti-lockdown movement. The BBC are reporting that thousands of scientists and health experts around the world have joined a global movement warning of grave concerns about COVID-19 lockdown policies. 6,000 experts now, including dozens from the UK, say the approach is having, the approach that's been taken now by most of the countries around the world, is having a devastating impact on physical and mental health, as well as society as a whole. Um, and they want a targeted approach to protect the vulnerable, um, 
just like the story goes from Sky News, it's being replicated in this morning's uh, online editions of uh, the news from the BBC. And then you have the Mail in the UK this morning saying that this major study shows that um, the COVID rules that exist in the UK, and we have quite a amount of similar rules here, may actually increase deaths and that 8 out of 10 people with the virus have no symptoms. So that's where we're at then. Uh, I pass that on because I would be from time to time accused of not engaging in as much balance as possible and that is in an effort to uh, to balance things and also bring you up to date that there is a growing concern about lockdown and restrictions and things like that from people's um, you know, mental health and also from the point of view of the economy and people's jobs. So you're welcome to text on that text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 1850104106. Lots of texts, but I see Sam is waiting for an age there. And I ran out of time yesterday uh, having a conversation with some people on air with regards. We all have heard of postnatal depression in mothers. But now, of course, we hear of anxiety, uh, depression, and indeed postnatal depression being also presented in daddies. Sam, good morning. Did you hear that yesterday? Good morning, Neil. How yeah. are you? Good. What, what did you make of that conversation? Um, firstly, with the, firstly, with the well, professor of midwifery and then some of the callers on the air. Well, I missed out on a part of the show. I was actually collecting my son from play school when okay. I heard yeah. the last couple of people on the air. Um, now, I did go on and I listened to the letter that, or the email that you read out. Yeah. Just so I kind of understood what was going on. Good. Um, I was not impressed at all with uh, the last couple of women you had on yesterday. It seemed they were very stuck kind of like I said in my message maybe 50 years ago when you know the man is supposed to look after the woman and the woman will stay at home and look after the kids always. They said all of that and they said she doesn't need him all the baby needs is a mother's love if he can't shape no. up and cop himself on then pack his bags and kick him out no no that was the gist oh, of no. it anyway yeah, exactly. Like, I remember now with my first son, it was just me on my own. I was a single mother and I got postnatal depression. I pawned my poor child off on my mother as much as I could. I started drinking like there was no tomorrow. I was going down this spiral of just, it was awful. It was really bad. And that was postnatal depression and it was seen by everyone you know, they were able to say, oh, she's suffering with this, la, la, la. When I had my second son then... Um, how did you get over that, though? How did you, how did you I, reverse out you of know that? What? It was, thankfully, the support that I had from my family and my friends. You know, they... My mom, mostly, kind of... She tried her best to say, like, this is what's going on with you. And I was in denial about all of it. I was like, oh, I love my baby and I'm fine. And, you know, I'm not depressed or anything. And, and she, what did you feel? I mean, I think you were, how, how old were you? You're in your, in, say, 20s, mid-20s? I was mid-20s kind 24. And after your little baby was born and you would look, it was, it was your son, was it? Yeah. Okay. When, when you looked at him, how did you feel about him? I absolutely adored him, but then there was times, I remember sitting up in the middle of the night, just rocking him, crying, like, please go to sleep, feeling frustration and, you know, feeling angry that, was I angry at myself? I couldn't get him to rest, I couldn't get him to stop crying, or was I angry at my baby because he was crying, and then feeling guilt because I felt like that. 
it was all a total mix of things. There was no one emotion towards it or lack of emotion. And, and this was know, every day, every night. Yeah, every day and every night. And it wasn't until I actually met my current partner. My son was just over a year old and I was I was very depressed. I was still in the midst of it all. And he really helped, although he didn't understand, my partner didn't understand mental illness or any of that. He's never suffered with any of it. He was very much there for me and supported me and was just an absolute treasure to have found him at the time that I did. And I think that really lifted me out of things and I felt like a unit and a family then. So that's kind of when I saw the bigger change in myself and how I felt towards my son. Like we acknowledge Um, postnatal depression in mothers and uh, many would visit their GP uh, for some kind of medical intervention. Did you do any of that? I did. I ended up um, seeing a counsellor. I ended up on medication. Um, You know, I kind of, I didn't want to go down the route of medication or anything. I wanted to try and, you know, stay away from that. But in the end, I said, you know, I need to be okay for my son to be okay. So I really had to do what I had to do. And if medication was what it was, then that's what it was. And it did help. Um, Counselling was just absolutely fantastic. It did the world of good. It makes a massive difference. And I know plenty of people that would think it doesn't, but, you know, it doesn't work for them or whatever, which is fair enough. That's someone's personal opinion. And my personal opinion is that it does work. You know, it's an absolute stranger. I sat there and just, I thought I was going to say nothing. And I ended up blabbing my entire life and feelings I didn't know I was feeling. And it definitely helped in how I was as a mother then, you know, it just, yeah, it definitely made a difference getting okay. intervention anyway. Okay, okay. You see, we um, and, and, and people would acknowledge all of the symptoms and, you know, the issues that you would go through. But in yeah. men, though, um, it, would appear men, that, that it would appear that at least some women yesterday have a problem with that. Yeah, I, it just really upset me hearing that. It's like, why isn't a man allowed to have postnatal depression or feel it's... When my when I got pregnant, then with my second son, um, my partner was out from after work until maybe the next day. And don't get me wrong, I'd be absolutely raging with him. I was sitting at home pregnant with a toddler, and he's out gallivanting doing what he wants. But I didn't look at that as him just being, uh, you know. I don't want to swear now on her. <laughs> um, I didn't look at it in a bad way. I thought, look, he's obviously struggling with something mm. and he's stressed and mm. things. Mm. And that so was his way of dealing think, with it, is it? Yeah, that that was his way of dealing with it. He was like, okay, I've got a baby coming and, you know, he's trying to, you know, smush all this freedom into the next... While like, he has the time, is it? While he has it, yeah. 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 So but you see, with this, with the with the emailer, she says, my husband go like many dads would come in and their husbands, uh, my friends tell me, they go straight from work home to pick up the baby. My husband goes straight for a bottle of Heineken. He was only a weekend drinker before the baby was born. Now he has a few bottles a night and just falls asleep on the couch. Yeah, I can relate to that. 
I can 100% relate to that. It's now my partner will come in from work and he'll acknowledge our son and, you know, he'll play around with him and think, now it's a lot better now. It kind of went through this thing again of, how do I say? It was like after he was born, he got excited before he was born. He was delighted when he was born. And there was the whole like being in, we'll say like the honeymoon phase of having a baby. And there was an added stress as well. We found out um, at birth that my son was born with Down syndrome. So there was a lot of stress and worry. Yeah. Yeah. And like I like let out my worries and everything and how upset I was immediately whereas my partner didn't he was trying to be a rock and strong and you know not be worried about any of it which I think caught up with him eventually you know after a few months it was kind of realisation and the whole thing of oh my god this tiny human (laughs) well that's just it and I was trying to make that point yesterday and so was Keith on the air he was saying it's double standard you're actually here's what you're saying and you're agreeing with him it's double standards to say that a woman can suffer or struggle but a man can't because of the massive change that a baby brings you know yeah it is it's absolutely terrifying and there's no guidebook to what to do like every single baby is different so you can't say okay this is how you raise it and this is the right way and this is the wrong way because God only knows which way is the right way and which way is the wrong I know. and I don't understand how it can be okay for me to get postnatal depression feel all the ways I do go to a doctor a doctor recognises it and all my friends my family all recognise it but if my partner was to turn around and say oh I'm really struggling I think you know I've got anxiety or do you know any of that if someone was to say to him oh jeez you're just get over yourself copy yourself on as the girls were saying copy yourself on or I'll kick you out no way I would do what my partner did for me and stand by him and help him through what he's feeling if that's what's going on with him you know I just think it's yeah it is it's very much double standard okay let me get some more calls and texts on this perhaps but I wish you well Sam and thanks for sharing appreciate it thanks very much cheers one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. Pick up the phone one eight fifty one zero four one zero six by text. More and more cases of postnatal depression in men and women will be a result of fathers or partners not being involved in the antenatal and postnatal period due to the COVID restrictions. More needs to be done to ease new parents into the transition into parenthood, like classes. Restrictions need to be eased for fathers to be allowed to see their babies in hospital in postnatal wards. They are allowed into the CUMH neonatal unit, so why are they not allowed into the wards to see their babies? I believe in Galway, they are now leaving partners in postnatal periods for an hour in the evenings. And that's from Paula. Morning, I believe that in some situations, similar to what you were talking about, is men can feel pushed out. And when their partner's attention is 100% dedicated to the baby, they feel pushed out. They might feel jealous. It's important to make time for each other. It's the largest transition in your life for both parents. And the fact that you're responsible for this helpless baby for the rest of your life and you want to do your best is overwhelming at first as a parent. Uh, Another few here. I work with families with newborns and I regularly see issues within the home where the fathers are detached From my viewpoint, mums are completely invested in their newborns. Friends and family are completely invested in mum and baby 
and dad can find himself left on the sideline. And just one quick one and then more after 10. I do not think it's jealousy of the baby this guy is. He's missing the time he had with his wife and is having difficulty with a life-changing thing that has happened. If mom is breastfeeding, dad can also sometimes feel like they're not, dads can also feel like they're not needed. I feel dad in this position will not, will not admit this to his wife because he doesn't want to sound petty. It seems like he is finding this whole change exceedingly difficult for him. Well, he may be, but he's not acknowledging it because he said to him, uh, she said that I tried talking to him, but he says it's all in my mind and blames my hormones. Maybe at some stage he will just come clean and tell her he's struggling. We'll pick it up after 10. A few minutes, hope to talk with uh, the former state pathologist, uh, Dr. Marie Cassidy. She um, retired from the job a couple of years back. Interestingly, they still haven't managed to, uh, uh, to, to fill that role of the chief state pathologist, but she's got a new book out now called Beyond the Tape, The Life and Many Deaths of a State Pathologist. Uh, and I had a chance to read it over the past couple of nights. Lines open at one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. You can text zero eight six eight one zero four one zero six. I was mentioning there uh, with regards to a conversation yesterday about depression in men following childbirth. Uh, those women who called in about the man that had postnatal depression make me want to turn off. They are disgusting with their old-fashioned ways. Would it be acceptable for a man? Say, for instance, to say that he would pack a woman's bags if she had postnatal depression. It most certainly would not. He might not have problems, but someone listening into the show could see, uh, could, and these two are shaming anybody listening who's struggling. Thank you for that. Um, I went through the same situation 16 years ago. My son's father did not even show up to the christening. He was sour. So jealous and so selfish. Having a baby is traumatic for the mother. Carrying a baby, giving birth to it, giving up everything to love and care for it. And all of a sudden, the father of my child turns into a helpless, selfish individual. It's so unfair on the mother and the new baby. Even if at the start, both parents were looking forward to the birth. 16 years on, the father of my child now wants contact. I say, sorry, but it's too late. Um, just one or two more. Oh my God, those women on the air, get them off. I can completely understand where that man is coming from. The days of the mothers doing everything, Neil, is gone. Those women may not realize it. I'm very lucky to have an equal home and a husband that will cook, clean and look after our son the same as I do. Those women sound extremely bitter, maybe for personal reasons and maybe not. That man, that dad needs help as he clearly has depression. Uh, a new baby is not easy. Stereotyping at his finest. Uh, they're putting all men in the same bracket. It's an interesting thought, actually, that if uh, if we were on the air saying things about women that were said yesterday about men, it would clearly not be accepted. And to some extent, I can understand how from time to time men get a bad rap, particularly if they're you know struggling with their mental health. Uh, regarding the lad not bonding with his child, one would have to continue to question the impact of the dad and parent ban at CUMH. Maybe men do also get postnatal depression, but the dad and partner ban is downright wrong. Bonding starts when the baby is born, so dads should be should be at appointments and at a minimum beside the baby and mother's side during and after labor. The ban causes depression for both parties. I'm speaking as a mom of two now with a three-month-old baby. 
and I suffered depression and anxiety from the visitation bans. So a big selection there of texts for you, and I'll come back to more of them throughout the course of the morning. Back after the break, Dr. Marie Cassidy next. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. Well, as I mentioned earlier on this morning, I read the book Beyond the Tape, The Life and Many Deaths of a State Pathologist. That state pathologist was Dr. Marie Cassidy. And in the course of 15 years in Ireland and many years before that in Scotland, but for 15 years in Ireland, she was Ireland's first female state pathologist, traveling the length and breadth of the country and along the way witnessing many harrowing scenes. Um, thousands of uh, autopsies and investigating and starting investigations, of course, because she would be the first port of call of hundreds of murders in the Republic. And she joins me by phone. Marie, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me on. It's lovely talking to you because we know your face and constantly saw you for many years in the TV <laughs> news, going in and out in your, in, your, in your white suits. But we knew nothing about you, who you were, what you liked. I didn't even know until I read the book that you were Scottish because I never heard your voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like going from the silent movies to the talkies, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it's just amazing. But like, and, and while reading the book then, of course, our, our interpretation of a job like yours would be like something out of Silent Witness or, or CSI yeah. you know the TV show it's far from that well it is and that's why I wanted to do this to just give people a, a better understanding of what does go on behind the scenes and you do I mean because for many many deaths in Ireland and I was reading in the book there are 30,000 on average die in Ireland every year mm-hmm. many of them are natural causes but when it's yes. suspicious it's broken into different categories you need to determine accident suicide or homicide that's when you step mm-hmm. in right that's right and that's when you're called because at that stage the guardy have to stop everything until you make a call you, you have to paint you have to paint a picture of that person's death, isn't it? That's right. I mean, I'm there to see if I can interpret all the marks and injuries and anything else about the body to give the guardie some idea of where this investigation's going. And sometimes it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, it's been reported in the press that there's been, uh, you know, a shooting in, in deepest, darkest Cork. And they even allowed me to travel into Cork. Thank you for allowing me into Cork <laughs> <laughs> on the odd occasion. Um, but very often they had a good idea of what was going on. But there were cases where it could have gone any way at all and only the post-mortem would determine what direction the investigation too. And how would you, uh, just talk us through how you approach a scene, clearly very carefully. Mm, yes, in my heels. Um, yes, I, I mean, usually a lot of the time when we're going there, we're not, we don't know what's going to be the most inf- important part of this investigation. In some cases, it is the cause of death, in which case that the post-mortem is going to, to you know, uh, tell the, the, the guardie the full story. Sometimes it's something as simple as we don't know who this person is. Yeah. Um, and until we find out who they are, we won't know how, how they got there and what happened to them. And sometimes it's the forensic evidence that's going to be crucial in a, in a particular case. So before we go in, we have to discuss what's, what, are we, what are we trying to achieve in this particular case? And therefore, how do we approach it? And we don't go in as we used to do, you know, in our, in, literally in our hobnail boots, you know, tramping through things. Now we have to be very, very cautious and very, very careful before we go anywhere near the, the scene. I don't wish to be overly graphic, although the book is quite detailed, I have to say. And you go into chapter and verse all of your life. And, you know, I mean, we talk about you arriving at a scene and, of course, you have 
the unfortunate victim. But you look at an awful lot than just the body or the person who has died. You're looking at the room. You're looking at the situation in which they lived. I think in one part of the book in the early days, you're actually saying, I thought this was quite interesting. He said, it's rare to get a call from the posh side of town. Uh, On so many occasions, you've gone into scenes like this to see poverty, squalor, um, physical and mental abuse. I mean, like, how do you prepare yourself? I mean, like, how did you mind yourself in that career? Psychologically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things. And I think um, because I've been doing it a long time and I know a lot of forensic pathologists, we're all cut from the same cloth. We've all we're all able to cope with things. We all have our own coping mechanisms and um, none of us really suffer from any trauma. If, if, we, if we found it disturbing, we, we wouldn't be able to, to do what we do. And we would have to just sort of say, no, look, I have, <laughs> it's time for me to go time. Um, so we have to be able to cope with these things. And, and it's not something you learn, but, you know, over the years, you're experiencing different types of case, different types of circumstances. And you're just building up, you know, a, a bank of images um, and information that you can use later on in your career. But um, no, all of us can cope with what we see. I mean, you, you, went, you went to Bosnia um, some years back uh, yeah. as part of a team that had to exhume mass graves. Yeah. You were there to prove that there were war crimes, wasn't it? That's correct, yes. But yes. the conditions, I mean, they were just hard to believe. They were. I mean, the conditions—the conditions the bodies were in were, yes. were pretty awful. The conditions that we were working in at times were pretty awful, and the whole thing was just. Uh, I think if you weren't made of sterner stuff, <laughs> you you couldn't cope. And what I did find in uh, the first my, my first mission with the UN was that um, a lot of young people had volunteered to come and help. Um, and they had no concept of what they were getting into. I mean, I've been doing this for years. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly what I'm going to see. And there were some young, you know, youngsters coming in, university students who thought, oh, I'll go and, you know, do some voluntary work yeah. in the UN. Yeah. Not expecting that they would be, you know, sort of parachuted into a, a, a place in the middle of nowhere and be, you know, put into a mortuary situation and dealing with, with bodies. And we found, I found a lot of them struggling with it. And no wonder. I mean, I, I was thinking, good God, we need to look after these young people. But were you born of, st- of sterner stuff then? Was this back to your upbringing in Glasgow? Well, I think I've just been one of those people who just rolls their sleeves up and gets on with things. And I think that was always the, you know, behind everything I've done is just, you know, you had to, to just, you know, there was no point in saying, well, I, I don't want to do this and I can't do that. You just did it. And, but I think... From the point of view of forensic pathology and dealing with the, you know, murder investigations, I mean, I don't think anything equips you in life for, for, you know, dealing with those situations, but you just have to be able to cope. And, and I see it, as I say, all of the people that I've worked with, the forensic pathologists, we are all 
able to cope with these situations. We've we've signed up for it. We know this is what's going to be what we're going to see day in and day out. Yeah, I mean, reading the book, you talk about alcohol-related deaths. There's mm. there's there's quite a number actually of falling of people falling downstairs, and you're there to find out: did they fall down the stairs? Were they were they pushed down the stairs? You also talk of uh, the gangland killings, clearly, which have become much more of a phenomenon now than yeah. ever before. Yeah. Bodies in the woods, um, familicide, the killing of children, Marie. That must mm. be awfully hard to deal with. That, Joe. Jo, that's the one time that. The whole, uh, everybody is affected by that. You can't help but be affected like that. That is not normal that these children have died in these circumstances. There is no way of of making that (laughs) palatable at all. So that does affect everybody and it does. And that's when, again, I have to, to, to flip into mammy mode a bit as well because I'm looking to make sure that everybody who's in the mortuary and dealing with these cases is coping because... It's not what most people, guards didn't join up to, to spend their time in a mortuary. This is alien territory for yeah, them. Yeah. And coming into a situation where you're, particularly when you're dealing with children, you know, nobody can, you know, prepare you for that. As I say, I'm an old hand. I can cope with things like that. Um, I'm there to do my best for the, the deceased. But, you know, I'm always very, very careful that the people around me, ha- you know, that's not what they came in to do. And they're probably struggling in dealing with these cases. So they're waiting for you to make that call to say natural causes, accident are. Sorry, guys, this was a homicide and they kick mm. in. You say you say in the book that the guards get a bad rap. Nobody would know better than you perhaps how hard they work in investigations. Yes, I mean, and that's the thing, and that was what I wanted to try and impress on people. The amount of work that goes on behind the scenes that nobody sees. And, you know, it's very easy to um, criticise things when, you know, when we don't get the answer we're looking for, if the outcome of a case doesn't, you know, doesn't, you know, match up with, with what we thought might happen. And the guards are always the easy one to blame, but... Believe me, they put a lot of time and effort into every case and um, they de- deserve a lot of praise for what they do. And what we're, we're, we're talking here, again, I don't mean to be overly graphic at this hour of the morning and allow people to read the book for themselves, but we're talking about knives, guns, blunt instruments, poisoning. Um, is there any one particular that's more prominent than ever? Would it be knives, for instance, maybe? Well, when I was working in Glasgow, it was, you know, knife crime was prevalent. I mean, that was the, you know, the the weapon of choice in, in Glasgow. When I moved over here, I found that, no, people were, guns were being used much more often. And there seems to be an easier route to getting guns in Ireland than there was in Scotland. And of course, if you go down the country, you know, the shotguns are, are, are obviously available, but also handguns were becoming more and more um, into the gangland life. And so I was seeing more shootings when I came to Ireland. And in fact, a lot of my colleagues in the UK were saying to me before I retired, could we come over? Because we don't see very many shootings. I'm saying, oh, well, come to, come to Ireland because, you know, we're seeing far too many. You know, um, you were involved in, in, in some cases on Lee side, and again, w- with, with respect, some family members of some of the cases that you were involved in listened to this radio program. Mm. One, one of them, of course, uh, was um, uh, the death of Robert Houlihan. That, yeah. must have been, that must have been awful for you, mustn't it? And indeed for the family, don't get me wrong in that regard. But you actually, when, reading the book, when, when you came to the scene those years ago, Mm. You were hovering over it in a cherry picker, is that right? 
Yes, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, a tragic case. And, I mean, for the family, that was awful. Um, because, you, it's, as I say, it's not the norm that your children go before you. And having to deal with all of that and, and of course, all of what, you know, the, what was going on round about it. Search, but that was one yeah. of those cases that, you know, you don't want to lose evidence. And so there was no point in me going in and clambering through things to see where the, where the, the, where where Robert had ended up, and that was why they said no. You have to you'll have to to look on it from above, um, and just so that you get at least an idea of where he was, so that you can you can take that into account when you do your examination. One thing I forget about that is because it was a, there was a passage of time overnight, um, and yeah. I remember re- reporting on this s- sad tragic case at the time. Mm-hmm. And a member of the Garda Shikana stayed with Robert Hulan through the night, and they didn't yeah. want to leave him on his own. Wasn't that a beautiful no. thing? I know, and, and that, that's the same. Look what the, what the guards do. I mean, and they, I mean, that must that must have been very hard for somebody to be there all night in those circumstances. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I mean, we do hear of things that are planned and premeditated, mm-hmm. but a lot of the time they're not. Sure, they're not. They're heat of the moment things where exactly. all of a sudden things just flame out of control. Exactly, and that's where the old drinking drugs comes in. I'm afraid. Um, when the when the drinks in the wits out, as they say, and these things are not. I mean, I mean, there's very few people go out on a Saturday night thinking they're going to end their night with somebody dead. I mean, that's just you know, that doesn't. That's not what happens. It's just something you know, something causes a wee argument. It gets out of hand, and even just a push can sometimes be enough to knock somebody to the ground and and cause their death. You 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 recall because you say in the book you would have been of that age group if you'd lived in Ireland, you may even have been at the Stardust fire disaster where so many people died. Um, But there were some misfortunate young people who couldn't be identified for many years. You were involved in that many years later, weren't you? When, with the passage of time, forensics had improved, am I right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, that was one of those cases where, again, from the family's point of view, that must have been heartbreaking that... All of the other, I mean, having a death in the family is dreadful. And the 48 deaths, of course, it. in this case. Yeah. And, uh, but the bodies are returned to the families, but this, this small group of people didn't get a body back and they were just told, well, they're there somewhere in that, you know, in that grave. And that's very hard for people to take. But it took a long time for the signs to catch up with us. And at the time that, I mean, they had been lobbying for a long time, but I think when we did get to do the exhumation and we did get to identify him, everything had just come, everything was in alignment at that time. The coroner was, you know, pushing for it. I was pushing for it. The anthropologist was pushing for it. And now science could help us. And that was, from the family's point of view, it was wonderful. But unfortunately, some of the family members had died, never getting that so, but these, but no matter what, it was, it had, it had to be done. It was done, and I hope the families, the family members that were remaining, at least got some comfort out of it. And you say that in the book over and over again: the importance of your role in dealing with mourning and grieving families. You never yes. forgot that any time that there were no. human beings going through the emotions of loss. Yes, and 
I mean, in some way, I was shielded from that in the, in the early stages of an investigation. But there was always going to become a time when I was going to have to face the family, see the family. But you're always aware that they are there. And it's the thing that keeps you going because you've got to get to the, get to the nub of this. You've got to be able to try and, and, and solve this this case because it's important for the family and it's important for the family moving on to get the information. And along came uh, DNA and along came mobile phones and mobile phone technology and that changed everything and to some extent you say it almost, I think you said that it almost made you as a pathologist uh, somewhat sidelined, is that right? Well the DNA certainly I mean, um, I, I remember getting my first mobile phone, and as you remember, the early mobile phones, they were enormous things, and now they're getting bigger and bigger again. <laughs> um, but what it meant, we were now available 24-7. Before, you know, it was, it was a bit of an effort to try and track us down. Yeah. Um, but now you could, you know, at, at a, pressing in a few numbers and the, the forensic pathologist was there. We were accessible now all at all So hours. you were always on call. I mean, back in the day, John Harbison yeah. was all on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but now at least we have more. But, but when you were yeah. there, it was just you, wasn't it? Yes, for a while it was Jack and myself. And then when he retired, then I was on my own for a while. And then over, a period, over the years, then we had more people join the, the, the department. But yes, it's quite onerous being um, waiting for that phone call coming in because you know that it's going to come at some time. You just never know when. So you then would be off to the four corners of the country in all sorts of weather. You talk about freezing cold mortaries. At one stage, it was so cold. Did you stand in buckets of warm water to keep yourself warm? Is that right? Yes. Yes. God bless the poor. It's far from the TV image, like sure it's not, isn't it? Far from. What we see in the, like, uh, you know, CSI or... Did you, actually, I think you... Did you consult with Taggart way back in the day? Yes, yes. They, that was unusual in that uh, Taggart actually used our mortuary to, to do their filming. Um, it wouldn't be, it would probably wouldn't, it wouldn't be allowed nowadays with health and safety concerns, but there weren't any health and safety concerns, certainly not for us in those days. And the Taggart crew used to come in and we would just say, hang on, we're just finishing off this morning and then we'll give it a clean and then you can move in with your film crew. And, <laughs> and that, we just all took that as being normal in those days. Yeah, but is it, it's far from the glamorous image on television then, is it? Oh, very far. I'm afraid it's not glamorous at all. Um, sometimes it can be heartbreaking, but um, as I say, I've always found it interesting. Do you ever sit back and wonder why people take other people's lives? Like, like why, why do more men kill than women, for instance? Much more so. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, people have done research into all of these things. I mean, it just happens that um, men get themselves into situations where, you know, violence sometimes is the answer, whereas women tend not to. And as I say, very much it's um, drink associated in a lot of cases. And a lot of the violence is just sporadic. Also jealousy, isn't it? Isn't it? Sometimes, you know, I know the case of, say, of of Rachel O'Reilly and others like that, where mobile phone technology played a big part in in that. Mm. But is is there any is there any one reason why murderers get caught? You know, there was there was like the case of a misfortunate woman who died, and there was an allegation that she'd fallen down the stairs, but actually she'd been she'd been strangled, hadn't she? And yeah. you you went into her bedroom and you found her bathrobe, was it? That's right, and there was um, the 
belt from the bathrobe um, showed some staining, which we thought then that would in, could indicate that that had been used to strangle her. Um, but it's, it's it's all sorts of things, you know. People, as I say, a lot of a lot of the murders we deal with are just just happen. That you know, things get out of hand, something flares up. But there are a few that are premeditated, and um, a lot of people put a lot of research into what they're going to do, but they don't realise that, particularly with technology these days, we can, you know, the the, the guards can actually get, discover all of this. And, and discover what they've been doing. And Big Brother is out there now, no matter what we do. Yes, even Google searches can help in a crime, can't exactly, they? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Googling so, asphyxiation and things. Exactly. And, and people don't think about that. They think they're being very, very clever. And then they, they wipe their history. But you, you can't, you know, it's, it's there. It's, you know, they, they, these people can actually find these things. I have no use with technology. And that's why it's time for me to go. Because <laughs> technology is, is, is becoming key to a lot of you know, these investigations. And I, I barely can use my mobile phone. Um, so I'm not the person to be involved in that. And I, I'm always stunned at how much they can do. But... Are there murders, do you think, um, that you might have missed where the murderer was just so clever he or she just fooled you? Well, there's there's always that possibility, isn't there? Um, and, and there's also bodies that were probably never found yet. And there's probably people that have disappeared and people just have assumed they've gone missing and haven't even realised that, no, they're not missing, they're dead. And all of these things, you know, we will never know and there's no way of us ever knowing. Of course, you weren't involved, and I don't know if it's somewhere you want to go or not, but you weren't involved in the uh, death of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier, but that remains unsolved. If that were now, with all of the advancements, do you think we'd be looking at a different scenario, do you think? Um, that's hard to say, actually. We're talking about um, 1996, 97 exactly, at the time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason why I'm here, because it was on the... the because they realised then that, that Jack couldn't possibly cover the whole country and be, you know, at either ends in, in one day, um, that that um, he was allowed to have a deputy, and hence the reason that he contacted me all those all those years ago. But yes, I mean, it depends. I mean, you're talking about rural Ireland, you know, how much CCTV would be there. I mean, it's... It's, it's very different now because we, we're we now used to that technology. Um, but would it actually necessarily have made its way into those areas? I don't know. I don't know. And do you miss it now? No, funny enough, I, I don't. Because you say, you say in the book to your children, perhaps now when you read this book, you realise why Mammy wasn't around for so many birthday parties. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I gave them the, the book to read and I thought, oh, they'll, now they'll say that's awful or whatever it was. But the two of them said, oh, we didn't know you'd done all of those things. <laughs> I said, how did you think I was going when I left in the morning? <laughs> well, it's great to catch up with you. You have the most beautiful Scottish voice that I never knew you possessed. But you're, are you, are you back home? Where's home? Because I know there is some, there is some Irish descendants, isn't there? Yes, yes. My grandparents on my mother's side came from Donegal and my father's side came from uh, roundabout Cavan Way. So, um, yes, we, 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 we do. We, I mean, we have got the... I've never actually gone digging for any of them. Um, and uh, I, might, I might start doing that now, having a look to see exactly where they, where they are, where the bodies lie. And you also say that, thankfully, all these years later, you are no longer the only woman in the room. Explain that to me. 
Yes, well, when I started in 1985, there were no female forensic pathologists. There were a few women who would do a few cases now and again, but there wasn't anybody who was a full-time forensic pathologist. And so when my first, my first meeting, um, I went into the, the room and it was, was all male forensic pathologists. And they had no qualms about that at all. They were quite happy and quite accepting. They just thought, oh, there's another Egypt that wants to do this. Well, good on them. It was, funny enough, it was their wives who took great umbrage at this um, young thing coming in and spending time with their husbands. Really? Yes. They were the ones who, oh, they took a long time. Did they make it known to you, I wonder? Oh, they did, because that, that very morning of the um, the meeting, as I came down to, to go into the meeting room, the ladies, as they called themselves in those days, the ladies were congregating because they were having a day out. They were going shopping. And I was asked uh, what my name was. And I said, it's Mary Cassidy. And they said, oh, you're not on the list. And I said, oh, and I just assumed it was the list for the for the meeting. And I said, oh, well, I, you know, I, I should be on it. Um, and they said, well, uh, who are you with? Um, are you somebody's girlfriend? And I said, oh, I'm married, but he's not here. What's that got to do with it? And, they, and I said, I'm here for the meeting. And they went, oh, so you're not a lady? And I went, oh, well, obviously not. <laughs> obviously not. Was, so I'm, a <laughs> I'm a pathologist. I'm a pathologist. I'm one of them. I mean, it's great that you have such a fantastic sense of humour, but one wouldn't think it in a state pathologist, <laughs> forgive me for saying it. I would have thought you'd have been just very straight-laced and serious. But of course, you were through your career. Would you suggest to all people then, particularly young women, to follow their dreams? Certainly, certainly. I was always told, I mean, as I say, my mother's, on my mother's side, there were strong women and they just always said, just go and do whatever you want to do. And I've just never, I've never taken a no or I've taken, if I've been told no, I've thought, right, well, I either try and move around that no or I go off in a slightly different direction. But it's never stopped me. I've just kept going. And I, luckily, I ended up where I ended up. Okay. And we want to thank you for it, for all of your contribution to our society on behalf of all those who needed their lives and their deaths explained. Um, and there's so much more in the book which will allow people to read for themselves. Marie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the call. Oh, thank you. It was lovely speaking to you. Bye-bye. Dr. Marie Cassidy, Beyond the Tape, The Life and Many Deaths of a State Pathologist, and it's on on sale. In fact, I will be talking to the publishers probably a little later on this morning. If I twist their arm, I'll get a half a dozen copies of the book and see if we can sort that out and give them away on the air. Uh, Hopefully tomorrow, if not early next week. But um, it's an incredible read. It's a very important document, actually, uh, for this country. Because as far as I know, for the first time, we never had the insight of what went on in Ireland, certainly in the case of Marie Cassidy, as her tenure for nearly 20 years as the state pathologist. And in that in itself, it makes this book, Beyond the Tape, very, very important document for Ireland. Back after the break. Text The Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Indeed. Sent a photograph from Mitchellstown this morning. Level 3? Question mark. Not in Mitchellstown. It's market day here and everyone is carrying on as normal. Is this okay? Well, when scrambling again back from my level 3 printout to see what's the story with that and I don't know whether that falls into uh, the section of retail and services which says open with protective measures. Uh, would it be in that open with protective measures or would outdoor markets be under the organized outdoor events section 
And if that's what it's in, then outdoor organized events is limited to 15 people. Where are we at? Because there will be more outdoor markets, of course, certainly across Cork this weekend, starting probably this morning and again on Friday and certainly Saturday and Sunday. So where are they at? Now, can I just give a shout out here? Because this is very important because these damn things are very expensive. So here's the story. On Tuesday night, uh, my brother left his set of knives in a taxi. He got in a taxi from St. Finbar's Cathedral to Ballyvalan. Unfortunately, he didn't get the taxi man's name or number and only realized he left them once the taxi had gone. You might be wondering about a set of knives. He's a chef and just finished his last night of work for at last three weeks, having only just returned to work from three months of being unemployed as a result of the coronavirus. These particular set of knives are of great importance to my brother. He's been collecting them over 10 years. Not only did these knives cost a fortune, and they do, chef knives could cost you grand, even more. Uh, some of them are of great sentimental value to him as he received some as presents and personally purchased some from other countries all over the world on his chefing travels. He's devastated without them and getting them back would mean the world to him. Hope you get a chance to read this out, Neil. Love the show, says Robert. So, devastated chef whose who st- who knives, set a chef's knife. They're long. Uh, they, they rolled them up, actually. Um, all of the knives, they're kind of laid out in a long... Uh, almost like a long apron, and then they roll them up and tie them. But if you were that taxi driver, you probably don't know where he is or who left them, and maybe you found them in the back of the taxi. Would you ever get in touch with us? Because it would be great to be able to reunite them. I'm assuming that whoever got into the back seat afterwards didn't take them, and I hope that wasn't the case. But if anybody knows where this uh, set of chef knives are, get in touch, because that would be a job well done. Text 0868104106. Back to the phone lines we go. John, good morning. Morning, Neil. Are they saying it's 15 million in Garda overtime or 15 million to man the checkpoints, is it? 15 million in overtime well, you, uh, for, to disrupt, for to disrupt people as they go about their everyday business. Well, I know that up the country they're talking about 5 and 10 kilometre tailbacks. Did we have any of those? Not that I know of any, but I mean, I've I've been listening to uh, radio reports yesterday morning and, and into the afternoon about people... Uh, who were just uh, totally frustrated, uh, trying to go about their business. And not alone that then, but they were running a two-tier system because trucks and buses could pass just just drive through because the Gardaí assumed that they were going uh, on, you know, worthwhile business. Essential, yeah, essential, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but do you know how many uh, ICU beds we had yesterday? Uh, 20-odd, I think, was it? 33 was the figure that I got, so... 15 million... Uh, well, we have a lot euros. more than that, but these were ones that were free. Yeah, we yeah. have about 15 million euros into a nailing uh, health service, I'm sure would uh, resonate better with uh, people other than uh, trapping them on a motorway and harassing them. Like, I mean, are we going to tear up the Constitution, Neil, uh, where it says we have the right to travel and the right to act as citizens of our own country while there's flights coming into the airports and they're coming in and they're uh, untested uh, no, no travel restrictions, but if you're if you're Irish or you're living on the island, uh, you're a target. Did you hear the report yesterday that said a lot of people? I don't know the number, the percentage, but they said a, a fairly handy proportion of them are given false information at the airports and they can't be found. Oh God, that's that's not beyond belief. But we 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 have a we have a trinity in power. Uh, who don't trust one another, who are not talking to one another, 
and they're setting and they're setting the ground rules then for the people who are supposed to behave like modern citizens. This isn't this isn't working. It's it's a virus. You're not going to be able to stop us. It doesn't matter what you do. So are we going to the to the to the stage next? No, we are going to bring in martial law that if people are caught out in the streets after nine o'clock, that they can be shot inside. Is it? Well, they are talking about um, curfews in the UK regarding yeah. pub closing times at ten o'clock because they're saying if they close the pubs at ten, um, people won't get as drunk and they'll go home and they'll behave properly. You know, so that yeah, is a form of curfew. <laughs> Yeah, but does that mean that they'll go earlier and get tanked up during the day? Ah, for sure they will, yeah. But you see, what are you going to do when we're six or seven months into this? Uh, Neffet and the government, they can't just reverse out of this now because they'll be hell to pay. Like, if they were to turn around and say, listen, yeah. lockdown hasn't worked and we need herd immunity and we need to open up the economy and keep vulnerable people safe. Somebody was suggesting to me this morning that the state would be sued by all of the businesses who closed and lost money because it's now proved that what the government did was reckless to their business. Do you understand? So, that's, like That's correct. Well, well I'm very happy now that you brought up that because I was going to say it to you. There are German lawyers at the moment who are uh, bringing in uh, a class action uh, case against uh, the German government for uh, the loss of businesses. Uh, and and personal uh, uh, really? monies that oh yeah no these people uh, have said that they have no problem talking to citizens out of other EU EU countries who are feeling in the same situation so so businesses now will have to start looking that up and 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 honing in on us because like you're not going to stop a virus it doesn't matter what you do only your immune system will save you from a virus. And we have a bunch of numpties uh, who are dodging the bullets. And we had a situation last weekend where Neffet went directly to, uh, to the Minister for Health and told him. Uh, and when, uh, and when uh, Varadka found out about it, uh, if he had any here, I'm sure he would have asked it. Yeah, but now they're know. suggesting that other people knew earlier, that Michal Martin would have known earlier, and that certainly well, Stephen Michal, Donnelly Michal, knew earlier. Michal, yeah, Michal Martin knew but uh, they didn't. He said. Uh, they he said Neffet. He said he. No, he's now saying, "Oh yeah, well, I did know Neffet were meeting, but I didn't quite know what they were discussing." Well, that's what they were discussing. But uh, uh, Varadkar wasn't told because the two boys are playing head games with one another uh, constantly. What are we going? What that's are we? Not, that, that's not good enough. What are we going to do um, about the amount of ICU beds and ventilators in this country? If we allow everybody, hang on a second, wait a second now. If we allow everybody just to get on with their lives, mind the vulnerable, but say, for instance, people get on with their lives and they give coronavirus to somebody who has underlying health conditions and over and swamp ICU capacity, what, what would you be saying then? Well, this comes back to, to uh, a nailing uh, health system. No, 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 I know that. I know that. And I know there's only yeah, 27 beds free today. I know that. No, no, what, no what? I'm, talking, I'm, I'm talking about now that we are now trying to build a, chil- a children's hospital that's gone into the stratosphere. We don't know when it will be finished. Why weren't we building hospitals and, and putting... No, no, but you're not, I know that. I know all of that. Thank you for the history lesson, but you're not answering my yeah. question. What happens when, if there's... No lockdowns and everybody gets on with their lives and we swamp the health service and we haven't enough ventilation. Now, I know that they're treating COVID patients differently now. Not everybody will need yeah. ventilation like in March because they've learned a lot from mm-hmm. it. But what happens if we break capacity? Well, let me put it to you like this. I, I don't have an answer to this, but let me let me put this to you. 
all the people who uh, died from uh, smoking, were we all held it in, uh, in, into our homes because people were smoking? No, we weren't. Smoking isn't contagious, well, though. No, no, but it, it gives you cancer. But secondary smoking gives, can give you cancer. There was nothing done about that. It was only so many years ago that smoking in, 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 in buildings was prohibited. No, it's it's. And what, uh, and what about all the other people who, uh, who died from from the the ordinary, what we call the ordinary flu, like SARS one and SARS two? We weren't locked down for that. Yeah, but do you know of uh, ever a year when there was eighteen hundred deaths from flu? I put hold on a while, Neil. No, but do you? Because I don't. We're, 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 these are government figures. Where are the independent figures to tell us? I, I mean, yeah, listen, I know, I understand, I get as frustrated as you that the number of 1,800 includes people with underlying conditions who would that's, have died anyway. No, no. That's correct. That's, that's correct. And how are, we, how are we supposed to believe a government who don't believe one another? Man, I don't have I don't have any, the answer. Um, and if if anything, I've information overload most of the time. But you're not coming oh, up yeah, with a yeah. you're not coming up with an alternative. But so the, what is the the alternative is the health mentality? If you're healthy, you're, you've got a chance, and you, and and your immune system will save you. If you've got underlying issues, you have to take more care. And these are the people that they should have taken care of at the start, instead of uh, loving everybody into the same past. All right, pal. Stay in touch. Thanks, John, as always. Amongst right, other things, saying the 15 million spent on the Garda checkpoints would be better off buying and installing ICU beds and other issues like that. Lines open at 1850 I'll take a break. My apologies to Brian. Back after these. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at NeilRedFM. And you can text 0868104106. Brian, good morning. How are you doing, Neil? Thanks for holding. Um, yeah, it's very interesting overnight with the Dying with Dignity bill passing another stage. Uh, it was um, 81 to 71. It moves on now to committee stage, isn't it? Yep. Well, it's, uh, you know, I you know, I think, uh, like, I'm not an expert. I'm a, a lay person. I just re- I reckon that in situations where um, people are competent enough to make a decision um, and the uh, their situation is, um, you know, untenable. And, you know, I don't think it's anybody else's concern only theirs whether or not they want to make a, a final decision, you know. Mm-hmm. But, isn't Vicky Phelan's very much behind this, isn't she? Yeah, so does appear, yeah. So, you know, it, it seems to be gathering uh, momentum. I, I don't know, I had a quick look at the comment section there before you rang me, and there's a lot of a lot of people agreeing that it's, it's, it should be the individual's choice. Um, under very, very strict conditions and under very stringent medical advice, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, if the medical, if the medical opinions are, um, you know, in agreement and the individual themselves is, uh, like I say, compass mentis, the psychiatric report or whatever, would, would uh, back that up and... You know they're in a in a position not to like who wants to live in you know you know watching yourself deteriorate with your loved ones around you watching you deteriorate because if um, you because you, if you assist them in it um, then it's a crime right now. Well, it is. Yeah, it's a crime. But you know, the bill uh, would allow a terminally ill person who has the full capacity to make that decision to decide to end their own life, and that would be a voluntary assisted dying. I know it's quite complicated, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there was a case a few years ago, and it was a guy from Cork, um, 
and he went over to, to Switzerland, you know. He had a very degenerative disease. I think it was MS, um, made the national news, you know, uh, because he just, he was a young enough man at the time, maybe in his late 30s, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, he just, his quality of life. Uh, I know. And I knew, I knew friends who, uh, I have friends of his friends, you know, and, and they just said, he just, uh, just mentally, he got worn out uh, from battling us and from um, just being a burden and, you know, losing basic control over his functions. Mm. Um, and they were as, as sad as they were to see him go. They, they all understood his decision and supported it. You put, so, that, you put that beautifully, in fairness to you. But of course, the sceptics would say that uh, some people might be coerced. Yeah, well, you know, um, that's that's where the the doctors and and you know, like the psychiatric, uh, the psychiatrists kind of come into play, and the people closest to the individual come into play. You know, and people on the outside are going to presume they know more without facts. That's a very common occurrence right across the board in lots of lots and lots of yeah, situations. Yeah, I yeah, think. it would give somebody the opportunity to decide their own time rather than being put down as a, as a, as a suicide case, if you like. Um, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm just, I'll, I'll come back to this if there are other calls in it. Uh, so thank you for kicking this off from me. But the church already has come out. The Catholic church has come out overnight and said, this is a bad idea. I mean, less and less people take, you know, what the, what the Catholic church say, more take it with a grain of salt than ever before. But they're, but they're saying this is a bad idea. You know, this is not the way for end of life. This is not the way. Um, the Catholic Church feel that people should uh, be thinking, or you know, um, yeah. Well, I, I think your your moral or your spiritual opinion is is just that; it's your own. And um, I, I, you know, uh, I think the Catholic Church, um, you know, their their response was pretty predictable. You know, I don't I don't think anybody'd be surprised with them coming out with that. Uh, I think you know, if if you believe in, in your eternal soul and um you have that kind of faith and all the rest, then your own soul is your responsibility. It's not up to anybody else to decide. Good man. Isn't it isn't it fair to say that if this passes and becomes law, we have become a very progressive country, haven't we? From the outside, it would appear so. It would, like you know, there's a lot of progressive laws passed in the, yeah. in the last number of years yeah. that would make us look like some kind of um, uh, progressive uh, uh, utopia, I suppose, to outside countries. You know, um, I, I, I don't know. On the ground, sometimes you'd wonder if 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 we are. But ah, come I, I on! I could I, I could debate that with you all day if you wanted to go yeah. back to the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, of course, yeah, I know, and I grew up through the eighties. Yeah. So I'd, I'd agree with you on that. Yeah, but um, you know, sometimes you hear people and you and you still think that you're in the eighties. <laughs> but like for these things to be passed is, uh, yeah, I'd be I'd be happy enough to see that coming that coming along. You know, okay, let's see if, coming along that way. Let's see what people think of it. The die with dignity bill passing the latest stage of the doll. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate you taking the call. Nine lines open at one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. We're back after eleven with Tesco. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. And I will come back to text, but uh, I'm conscious as well that people uh, are under pressure with regards to getting on air because they're taking some time out of their busy lives. Alan is amongst them. Alan, good morning. 
Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm good. And uh, I know that uh, it's a sad reminder to you that, uh, you know, passing of your mother. Was it uh, a year ago this coming Saturday, is it? Yeah, a year ago Saturday. Um, first anniversary? She First anniversary she passed up in the South Infirmary. Uh, she was diagnosed with throat cancer uh, in March of last year. Um, took a quick in the end. Uh no, I just listened in a while ago. And when I, we talk of the dying with dignity bill that's going through different doll stages, that's important to you, is it, that discussion? It is, because, I, you know, I, I listened and I've read about it, right, and I listened to the, the last caller as well, and, like, what we went through with my mum last year was, it was horrific, right, and we were all there for her from the time she went to sleep and then passed away, like, seven or eight days. Um, and my mum had her faith, but... Um, I wouldn't be very religious, right? But, you know, people have their faith and I'm fine with that. And I'd say if you had suggested to my mom leading up to what happened, I don't think it would have been something she would have been interested in. All her family had a lot of faith, right? But I think if she saw the suffering that we went through for her and for ourselves, I'm not... uh, I think she might have had a different opinion, you know? I know if it was me, personally, I wouldn't want my kids, my wife, you know, any family that I bear, to see me go through that. It was, like, the care she got was unbelievable. I couldn't say any more. It was actually brilliant for what they'd done for... But, but, for so she had pain management, did she? She did. She didn't go to uh, to Marymount. That's her choice, and I think that's just, like, historical reasons for Marymount. People don't want to go there, and that's fine, right? Mm. Even though I know what, what a good job Oh, no, I understand what you mean by that, yeah. And yeah. Marymount came down to her every day and was pain management, but you could see... I think it wasn't actually totally pain-free and you'll never know, right? But I think she suffered and I don't think it's right, in my opinion, for anyone to get to that position when there's no coming back to have to suffer for that length of time and then the family sit there as well. So for me, I wouldn't put my family through it and it's something that kind of sits really deep with me since last year, right? I know it's like this week of last year is when we went through all this and I think it's not right for anybody to go through that and that's just my own personal opinion obviously So do you believe then that somebody in a situation where there is no hope and they're just um, biding time with pain or pain management or zero quality of life that in order to uh, avoid that for them and their families they should have an option to say well I don't want the next six months to be like that or the next three months or whatever I want to do something about it I would think that it's an option people should be given yeah I think it's, and people will disagree with me, and that's fine. Everyone has their opinions. But I think, personally, if it was me, I'd like to have that choice. I wouldn't want my three kids to, to have to see me and, and my wife to see me in that situation my mother was in. It was horrific to the point of, you know, even now when I, it kind of struck a chord with me this morning, you know. And it's like, you know, you sit back and think, oh, Jesus, what, what do we go through? It was just horrific, you know. And I think I would, I, I would like people, and even myself, to have that option you know, I, I obviously don't want to be in that position, but if it did get there, then I would like to say, look, just, you know, I, I don't want to go through this and I don't want my family to go through it. I'd like people to have that option. You know. Do you think it's cruel? <sighs> look, I, I, I could word it in a way that would probably piss people off, but like, you know, I put it this way, Chair, you know, if if you have a dog, right, and it's not a comparison, don't get me wrong, it's not, you know, you wouldn't let that dog suffer. You know, they, they, they're taken and to put out of their, you know, out of the, the the suffering that they're in, right? There's no comparison with human beings, obviously, but I think the amount of suffering that some mother go through, you know, unconscious and, you know, moving and, and shaking in pain, and then they give a breakthrough into a tie would would be enough, you know, more morphine again. To, to, you know, it was just horrific. Like, you know, 
couldn't move. You know, you could even went up into graphic, you know, the where the tumour was in our throat, you could see it grow day by day and, you know, it was just like I can just imagine I can't imagine, but the pain that she must have suffered to the point of never you know, never mourning because she didn't to be fair to her, right? And, you know what goes on inside you, I don't think no one knows, right? So even though they give another breakthrough which is on top of the extra mark, the morphine she's been given anyway, you could still see that she was lying there that she was suffering and it was and, the, and, and, yeah, and, 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 and and all all what's happening there is that the pain is being managed when it gets too bad, but there's still pain all the same, and ultimately it will lead to death. Exactly. And so we must. We, you we say were, you say we must find a more compassionate, a more kind, a more humane way of dealing with death. Yeah, you know, like like I look. My mother was seventy, right? She turned seventy in, on first of September of last year. So, like, we knew then that there wasn't much left, and you know, we, she was actually home then. And they left her home just because we could come and see her. You know, the kids could come along because bringing her up there wasn't nice, right? But I could, uh, you knew in your heart of hearts that this isn't going anywhere, you know, bar one way. And I think if I if I look back on all the good things that we did with my mother, you know, holidays and looking after us and Christmases and so on, and then, you know what, the kind, compassionate person she actually was, and not just saying that because she's my mother, she was, right, 100%, then for her to have to, have to suffer that way, I just don't think it's right, you know? I, I think it's... It's wrong for any human being to have to do that, like to go through that, and then for us to sit there, like I, I would in in a heartbeat have taken that away from my mother, you know. Well, yeah. I would have done, and yeah. I couldn't do that, obviously. But you know, you're sitting there, you're trying to be strong for, you know, you like I'm on the eldest of, of of three, right? And you know, you're trying to be strong, and you know, you can see what people are going through and the emotions, and you're trying to, you know, be as strong as you can, and it's, it's eating you up inside, and you're thinking. No, my mum passed, right? And, you know, I I didn't shed a lot of tears, but that's just me. But obviously I was just absolutely gutted, right? And I did in my own time, right? But I tried to keep it to myself yeah. a, a lot of the time. Maybe yeah. not the right thing to do, but that's what I did. But there was just like, and I don't want anyone to think any different of me, right? There was like a sense of relief when she passed, you know? Because it was I like, found, my mother died the same age as you, but I found that I cried an awful lot the months up to her death, um... Not afterwards. I, I, yeah, I, I tell him she she went to sleep on the Thursday, like seven, eight days before, and I cried like my heart out then because I knew she was gone then. But then we had to sit for the seven days, like going up to the South Infirmary at seven in the morning to eight, nine o'clock at night trying to get some sleep. We got calls three or four days in a row. Look, you you need to come up because you know she she could go soon. And then she she just battled on again and didn't. And then she she went then at like ten past eleven on the Thursday. So. You know, I've gone away, I've got tat- a tattoo of the time and the clock. You know, it's things to remind me of my mother. But not things that are sad things, but things that just will be with me because of her. But yeah. I go back and I just think of them seven days and I don't think it's, I don't think it's right for anyone to go through that. No, it's, it, I understand people's faith and it's difficult and it's a decision that some people will say not a chance, you know, it's not right religiously, but I think it should be left up to a human being to, to decide if I get to that point, you know, why let me carry on? There's no way back. And there wasn't a way back. She she was asleep on a Thursday and died the following Thursday. And, you know, if, if someone could have taken her on that Thursday, it would have made any difference to us in terms of she was going to go anyway. You know, obviously we were heartbroken and always will be mm-hmm. because of what happened to, to my mum and taken as well, I would think so young. But, you know, we had to sit down and watch her suffer for them seven days. To me, unnecessarily, right? Now, I will say, Neil, before we finish up, like I have to say that the infirmary, like the, the people who were up there were just unbelievable. They'd done whatever they could, but we knew from a few months back that there was no going back in this was stage four when, when it was when it was diagnosed, right? Yeah. And yeah. she went through the radiotherapy and, and tried our best to, to get better and, you know, it was never happening. But I think, you know, 
but I'll ramble along too much. I think that, you know, when it gets to that point in time, people should... No, you're certainly not rambling on at all because you're, you're giving me a perspective that I hadn't thought about from both sides. You're looking at it from your mother's point of view um, and watching her and you believe that your mother would be looking at it and watching you guys suffering, you see. Yeah, you see? I think it, it, it does go on both sides. Yeah. I, like, if you'd have said it to my mum when she was told that, you know, the, the tumour had shrunk but the second one grew and we were in the room when she was told and um, we were we were with her when she was told that, you know, they couldn't do any more. And you could see the look on her face and, you know, she went to the chapel up in the South Infirmary um, straight after that. No, I, I wouldn't, I, I'm, as I said, I'm not religious. And that's my choice it's, it's for no other reasons, right? It's just my own choice. But, you know, she went to the chapel and I'm thinking, you know, for keeping your faith up, man. Because if I got that news, you know, I'm not sure how I could take it. Like, you know, and I, I'm not sure how people's minds. Yeah, but that's because you don't have faith. You see, for somebody that does, this would even reinforce their faith for some. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, agreed. And uh, you know, yeah, that's they're saying their faith is saying to them. Their faith is saying that uh, okay, um, there's no more hope. I'm going to heaven. I need to be prepared. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's a fair point, Maria. But I, I just think, like, if my if my mom had been given that choice there and then, I don't think she'd have said, "Oh, yeah, I, you know, you can assist me." But I think if you'd have then, you know, I don't, know, I don't want to sound a bit crazy, but if you, if my mother could have seen herself in that situation and not around her, I don't think she would have wanted that, you know. I know, I know. Pleasure talking to you, John, uh, and I appreciate you taking the call. And uh, um, uh, God rest your mum. Sorry, Alan, I should say. God rest your mum. Thanks no, for taking you. the call. Look, take care, right? And, uh, Cheers. And have a good rest of the day. Cheers. Appreciate Bye. it. Thank you. Back after the break on 1850 104 106. My apologies, Alan. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851 Red FM. Originally, yesterday I read out that email where a husband has become distant since his son was born, rarely picking up the baby, saying things like, can't you shut him up? when he cries. My husband is taken to sleeping in another room as our son feeds a lot and that disturbs him. He never picks the baby up, never kisses, never cuddles. He's not mean, but he acts like as if the baby isn't there. I try to talk to him, he tells me it's all in my mind and blames my hormones. My friends' husbands are great with their kids. They come in from work, go straight to the baby. My husband goes straight for Heineken, uh, drinks every night now, falls asleep on the couch. Uh, I feel so sorry for my baby as uh, all he has is me. And it annoys me that if anyone calls, if we go out, my husband talks like as if he's a hands-on father. He's not. And we were so happy six months ago. Now it's falling apart. I feel so isolated. So that was the gist of that email. Uh, and I have some calls on that and also many texts. I've been in a very similar situation to that person in your email. My ex-husband wouldn't go to the GP for help. He was just blaming things and acting out negatively at home. It was so hard as I had two healthy, happy babies with no moral support from my now ex-husband. Is he an ex-husband because of that, I wonder? Um, the man is resenting his baby. He's blaming the baby for the changes in his life and because he now is not number one anymore in the house. He's gone down in the pecking order. I find that my own husband resents me and not the baby, incidentally. That's interesting. These women who are saying that he needs to either cop on or she should kick him out are basically saying that men cannot feel emotions when their children are born. No wonder the suicide rates are high in men when we have such horrible women living amongst us. It's 2020, ladies. Show some compassion. Come out of the 1970s. Uh, hi, I was listening to the reaction on air to that man's problem. This is exactly why men do not open up about their problems. We should be able to open up. Um, there's a lot of text on this, I can tell you. Why is the man's hormones affecting him? Surely his body hasn't gone through the changes like women. He is jealous of her attention to the child. It happened to me 
uh, my husband wouldn't get help, said it was my fault. He's now my ex-husband. So a lot of relationships have broken down because of this. Thank God you got a man on with some sense who was born in the last five or six decades to challenge these two old biddies who were born in a generation when none of this stuff about depression was even talked about. Those women believe they know everything about this family's situation. Morning, Neil. Narcissistic behavior is very common in relationships. It can completely debilitate someone mentally and make them feel completely inadequate, causing deep depression and feelings of self-worth. If you're living with a narcissistic partner uh, who never admits any wrongdoing, it can push even the strongest people over the edge. You're saying that her partner is a narcissist. Morning, my first daughter was born three years ago. I went through a very similar experience. As a new father who was excited for her arrival, I felt my world was shattered when she was born as I felt no connection to her and I struggled with my roles and responsibilities in the family as well as the change in my relationship with my wife. I did not confide in anyone until after the first year as I felt I was not normal to have those feelings. I drank too much during that time. I have thankfully worked through it and I'm now a proud, proud father of two beautiful girls. They are my absolute world. My wife has had great patience with me, but I know she feels she made the right decision uh, with sticking by me. Well, you know, I appreciate that text because people want to share a lot of the time, but not everybody wants to come on air and talk about it. Uh, Those two ladies commenting on the man being in the wrong have no clue what they're talking about and they're obviously old-fashioned and close-minded. And that, I believe, is sad. Thank you for those texts. Keep them coming. Text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 1850104106 and we'll get you on the air. Francis, good morning. Hi, Neil. I only wanted to give my opinion on... The Dying with Dignity bill yeah, that's being discussed in the doll. You jumped in ahead of me, absolutely. And, I'm, and I want to hear your opinion, so go ahead. I'm all for it, Neil. Okay. Okay. Definitely. After seeing people die, people I cared about die with cancer. Um, if there is no cure for somebody, they should have the right to pick when they want to go. And I sincerely hope Vicky Phelan gets this passed for herself. Here's what Vicky Phelan has had to say recently on it, okay? She said, um, the debate on dying with dignity will not go away. This issue deserves to be addressed. The public deserve it. Terminally ill patients like me deserve it. Whatever the outcome, the people of Ireland have made it clear that they want change. She said, there's a big difference in somebody dying of a heart attack and my situation. If you die of a heart attack, you don't know it's coming. You're dead. That's it. You don't have time to think about it. Whereas I, Vicky Phelan, have two and a half years to think about this and I've got young children. So it's very real fear for people when they're in a situation with an illness where they know they're going to die and probably die in a lot of pain. That's what she said. I mean, it's not fair on her God lover. She just saw Ruth Day. I can't remember her surname. And she, Emma McMahona. McMahona, yeah. yeah. And all the other... What do you say to people that say where there's life, there's hope, and you should never give up? There are even miracles, some say. No, I don't believe in miracles anyway. That's one. I don't think it has anything to do with the church or the state. You know, I know the law has to be passed, should be passed, I should say. But I think it's a personal choice. How can we ask her, after all she's gone through, to go through the pain of what she's going to face when she comes to the end of her life? I saw my sister die with bowel cancer that spread everywhere. And that was a long 
drawn out, painful death. That you wouldn't put it, we don't put dogs through it. We don't put animals through it. Why would we expect humans to go through but it? But how do we know that anybody that died painful, horrible deaths like that would have opted for um, a, an easier way if they were given the chance? You're, you're looking at it as an observer, you see. I mean, did you have a conversation with your sister? Did you have a conversation we with did, your friend? But it was mostly about what to do when her girls got because they were very young at the time. Oh, that's um, tragic. Yeah, well, no, we didn't have that conversation. But even a year before, we were heading up to Featherland Sea and we stopped off in Waterford to do a bit of shopping. She loved her shopping. And she says to me, my back is absolutely killing me. So we went into a chemist, got some albus oil, and I was rubbing it into her back. And I think, you know, the heat now will make it better. It was a lovely day, but it wasn't the heat she needed. It was the catching. She said to me, they had given her some kind of good news at the time. And she said to me, I wonder, is it the cancer spreading? And just for a moment, her mask, slipped and I could see the absolute terror you know no that was say yeah, July yeah, and she yeah. died August of the next year you know and was that a tough year for her her last year oh god yeah it was really it was you know there wasn't anything well she did get to see her girls both of them make their communion because the younger one wouldn't have been at the communion age but the priest said, was there anything he could do to help? So she said, could you let her make her communion as well? So she did see that. Oh. But, like, her legs were all swollen. Her stomach was all... Like, I could look at Vicky when she was um, on TV there a couple of weeks ago and see, you know, where she says, someday she looks like she's pregnant. There's the tumours, like, they put the body completely out of shape. But we didn't have that conversation. But after her death, right, I did have that conversation with several people, you know. And I've made it very clear if I ever got a diagnosis like that, I would want to head off to Switzerland, tell no one, not even buy a ticket to Switzerland, because you can't do it now. Everybody will know what you're up to, especially now, as I'm telling you. But go to... Dublin, go to Northern Ireland, make your way over to Switzerland and um, you're just lying there looking out at beautiful scenery and you go to sleep. How much kinder is that? Yeah, but you need to be 100% compass mentis for that uh, now and in full control yeah, of your faculties because you don't want somebody coerced or an elderly person coerced oh, by a greedy I'm relative. About myself. Sign you this know. now, sign this now, sign this. You know? No, it's just... It's How do you know that that wouldn't happen? What? That somebody could be bullied into signing a form. Oh, God, yes. No. I'm talking about a person who has a terminal illness, and they're not going to get better. I'm not talking about an elderly person at all who's in the way, or somebody wants their home, or their money, or both. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about somebody in Vicky's case. She's trying to spare her children. I mean, I remember my sister's children, like, kind of creeping up the stairs, and I'd say, don't go in today, you know, don't come into the bedroom today, uh, or no, you know, maybe she'll be awake after. Now she was awake, but she was a mess, God love her. 
with pain and everything else, you know. Yeah. And she didn't want the children to see her like that, but they saw her a good few times. Mm. They saw her sitting on the floor, opening the drawers in their, you know, the wardrobes, kids' wardrobes, with the drawers at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, getting their school books ready for school. She knew she was dying. You're not telling she me she would drag. You're not saying she would drag herself to the drawers. Yeah, ah. August twenty fifth, she died, and she knew the kids were going back to school in September. Right, so she was checking. Like, did they have pencils and markers, crayons? You know, that sort of thing. That I wouldn't have thought of that. She could have asked me to do that, but she wanted to, to do it herself. You know, and I was like, "What are you doing, Rose?" And she was saying, I'm making sure they have everything. Like, she put down new floors, new kitchen, all that kind of thing, new carpets. It was like, I'm preparing the house for them. From what I've gone, that's heartbreaking, Francis. That's really sad. It is, and you know, Nate... It's very sad. It is heartbreaking, and it broke my heart. It really and truly did. But my sister needed me to be strong. Right? I didn't have it in me. Every time I left her, I fell apart. I'd stop on the road in from Toker, pull over at the side of the road and cry for a half an hour and maybe ring the ladies from Marymount. They were so, so good. And just say, I don't know that I can do this again tomorrow. But I did. No, I'm delighted I did it. You know, but, like, it's heartbreaking and until you see somebody you love, like that, going through all this. You cannot like, frame an accurate opinion. Like, I yeah. would have loved if I had, like, in hindsight now, there was a load of things. She knew that I didn't know them because I was single. She was married with children. I could have said, Rosalind, make sure all this is done, you know? Um, but she wanted to do it. She wanted to make sure her husband was okay, her children were okay. And did you step her in after she passed? for them, and, you know, for and, a couple of years. Sorry? Did you step into that role after she passed away? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for yeah, yeah. Uh, 10 years of my life, yeah. <laughs> She's lucky to have you. Did you know what? It was, I was the lucky one to have her. Really, I was. All right. She was my very good friend as well as my sister. Hold on there, Francis, if you will. I just want to talk to John. John, good morning. Morning, how are you? So, therefore, how, honey, we can't really frame an opinion on this until we've walked in those shoes. Well, I've been at the bedside of my mother and father, right, and I've watched them take their last breath, and it's traumatic for the, the person that's dying. It's traumatic for the person that's sitting at the bedside, whether you'll be one or many, uh, family or friends, whatever. It is a terrible. Dying is not a nice process for the person that's dying, or for the family or friends or relations, right? That's a given, right? Now, what I'm terrified now, of all the times for this bill to be brought through the doll, talk about being insensitive, like, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, when every single night figures are read out about new cases, about deaths, about lockdowns, I mean, we're could be heading for another level five and maybe a complete lockdown. And what's all that about, Neil? That's all about saving lives. And while this is going on, in the middle of all this saving lives and on the TV every night, we have a character called Gino Kinney, who's belonged to Solidarity, Peel Report Office, and um, 
He's pushing this thing through the dialect. Now, I'm not one bit surprised. Uh, Gino, Kenny, yeah. Gino Kenny's a great guy. He, he is like, he's done, su- he's done super work on THC and all sorts of issues involving medicinal cannabis. Yeah, like, he has not just, been just, sitting on his hands. And just, well, anyway, just, 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 just because a guy done something good on, on one aspect, like, I mean, that doesn't mean, like, I mean, that we applaud everything he does. Because these are the same characters that who pushed abortion on the site. 6,666 children have been aborted last year. And that was pushed from the left in the doll. That's where it started. That was the embryonic stage where it started with the likes of Nick Daly's party, Gino Kinney. Now they're pushing on the disabled and the old. This will drive terror into people. I've spoken to people. It's not, it's, it's, to, it's not putting terror in the disabled or the old. It's, it's actually, it's actually a, a very sensitive conversation, I would have thought. Not unsensitive or insensitive, no, as no, you're no, suggesting. No, 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 I mean, I do, I do spare you from time to time, otherwise you'd be on every day on every radio station, so I have to share you around with everybody else, but did you want to jump in, Francis? Yeah, I just wanted to say, does John realise Vicky has to do this now because tomorrow her medication could stop working. Well, she hasn't got time that, to wait. Yeah, let him answer it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah look, look, you know, look, 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 the way they were treated and the way they were infected. I know her Vicky feeling now, and she's on bother time, right? Now, with the greatest respects to Vicky feeling, I don't want Vicky feeling to be turned into another Savita Halpanava who died of medical neglect. That's the coroner's report. Medical neglect. Yes. Yeah. But yet not... she was robbed and held up as a poster girl for abortion by the, the pro-abortion side, right? This is the same thing, though. Vicky Feeling you know, would be used now by the likes of, of the solid... It's nobody... Of... Hang on a second. There's nobody... She's not here to defend herself. But I know Vicky Feeling. I've met her a number of times. Um, she, she wouldn't allow herself to be used by anybody. She's passionate about something for her. No, but there's other people going to use her, is it? That's the problem. No, you, 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 you said earlier on there that we're no progressive society. No, I said, aren't we? Haven't we become, we have, haven't we become a very progressive well, well, society? Well, well, Neil, with great respect, no. If you think, like, you mean that murdering 6,666 children is progressive, if you think of bringing a bill through the dial and making it legal to take the life of elderly people that would stick, that would live on for another couple of years, but they'll be in terror of their lives and they will be saying to their families, no, they feel they're a burden and they'll be saying, look, I, I want to go, please. How do we know whether they really want to go or not? There was one elderly man came to No, I, I would have been talking more along the lines of uh, back in the day when you couldn't buy a condom. I was talking about issues like allowing for divorce. I was talking about issues like allowing for same-sex marriage. I was talking about the ever-growing respect for gay people. All of these very positive aspects. Did, did you know Did you know there's something at all? The likes of Michal Martin, was it any wonder that gone down to 4%, right, and Fianna Gael are much far behind them. There's no moral compass in our parliament at the moment. Everything is up for grabs. The unborn, the old, the disability, people with disabilities, whatever. Like in Belgium in these places, there was a 14-year-old with, with, with the, the permission of her parents. She availed of assisted suicide. No, how could a person suffering from depression make a decision like that now? That's impossible. It's impossible. When you're depressed, you can't make decisions. Why? Because you're depressed. Well, the the bill here has to do with terminally ill, not depressed. 
Yeah, but you see, the thing is, look, it's just like everything else. It's just like what happened with the abortion. It will be chipped away at bit by bit. Father told me, my party in tourists, they actually tried to get a bill through the dial for pain relief, for pain relief for the unborn, and it was voted down. Just I know, I know, and, and I, I am very respectful of your views on the unborn, but that isn't the conversation this morning. The conversation is if you were living with excruciating pain in your last days, weeks, or months, should you be given the option to step well, out of I, that pain I, and to I, end I, your I, life? I've been out in the hospital in Maryland. That's all I'm... That's all I'm yeah, I know, I understand this. Point, but look, if you go to Maryland, I've said, I've been out there, you've been out there as well, possibly, right? Yeah. It's fantastic, and the staff do wonders out there. And they treat the pain with dignity, and the families, right? And they treat the pain uh, so that people will go uh, as peaceful as they possibly can. But this is not a nice experience, right? There will be some discomfort, we all know that. But they do their best to control the pain. But bringing in a bill to make it no legal to take the life of elderly and people with disabilities, it will be totally abused, Mark. My no, word. there's no mention of elderly or disability. You keep on banging away at that drum. It's but terminal you illness. You may have a disability, but you don't have a terminal illness. But you see, now, the you're talking about youth. Yeah, you're. you're, you're yeah, you're, but that's what that's what's going to turn into because that, that's exactly what happens in Holland and Belgium, where these facilities are not available. No. I mean, everyone is up for okay. grabs. When a 14-year-old can take their lives, like, what hope has somebody else with a long-term disability? And the trouble is, and you mentioned it earlier, you said about bullying and intimidation. There's, uh, suppose a person has a lot of property and a lot of money. I suppose a person is costing a fortune to keep that elderly person in a nursing home. And you know the charges you've dealt with them over the years. They're, actually, they're just through the... Well, I am raising that as a possible fear and a worry. Yeah. It is a terrible fear. There was a man said to me when he came to the run, I'll finish on this, when I was campaigning. He said, I'm going out, he said, to vote against abortion. Do you know why I'm doing that, John? I said, tell me, sir. He said, because if they get this through and they come for the unborn, they'll come for me next. And by Christ, his words are right. Okay, appreciate it as always, John O'Donovan. Can I just mention, actually, with regards to some of the fear that is out there, I had a conversation with the chap yesterday who was telling me, uh, it was a fellow in retail who was, you know, organizing home deliveries, for an elderly man who said, I want to come over and to buy from you, but I'm not allowed because you're outside the four mile radius. You're outside the five kilometer radius. Your man said to the elderly fellow, you're not, you're not restricted in Cork to five kilometers. And he said, oh, I thought it was. Wasn't that what all the, the talk was about? That we can only go five kilometers and we need to stay within our own five kilometers. And he said, oh, no, no, no. You can go anywhere in your county. I'm only just mentioning that again in, fa- in case there are other people out there who still may think by any stretch of the imagination, may think that they have a limit. You don't have that kind of a limit. Uh, and uh, that elderly gentleman needed to know that and others too. Anywhere in the county of Cork. As the fella says, for now anyway. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 1850-104-106. All right. Uh, you need to keep telling people to stop being afraid, Neil. You don't say it often enough. Isn't it time to stop being afraid of this virus? Eight out of ten people show no symptoms. How do we get to such a high level of fear in this country? The media and the government have pushed this beyond any reasonable level. I'm happy to engage in both sides of this discussion, argument or COVID-itis that we live with. Uh, meanwhile, uh, just a couple of texts here on John. Can you please stop giving airtime to John O'Donovan and his uninformed opinions? He has he nothing better to do with his time, says Paul and Westcar. I would suggest it's been easily three months, maybe even six months since John O'Donovan was on the air with me. So I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, oh, the gospel according to John. Why do you allow him on air? 
because I allow anybody else on air, but not too often. It's been months and months since he was on the air. John O'Donovan, I never thought I'd say this, but can Neil please shut up and let John speak? <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Um, lots of different texts and different topics of conversation. Not all of them, of course, are COVID-related, but uh, they are very important in their own right. And uh, a topic of conversation is very important to Kate because um, of, uh, of her mam, and she joins me by phone. Kate, good morning. Morning. I bet when you got uh, up this morning, you didn't know you'd be talking to me on the air about something that's so that's so sad. Yeah. Especially when I read what's happening now, because um, since January, my mother my mother is dying in in the home. Uh, we were told she's dying. They've stopped all medication, blood blood tests, all this, but she's dying very very slow. Um, literally, now she's confined to bed. She's gone away to skin and bone. So then the lockdown came. But before the lockdown came, I was there when I witnessed her being changed and she was screaming in pain. I was very distressed after it. So I couldn't do nothing because the lockdown came. But when I went back after the lockdown, I was horrified. My mother was a skeleton in the bed. Literally now couldn't eat nothing and you couldn't touch her or nothing. So I requested a meeting with the manager I asked that my mother be moved to Marymount as she was dying really hard and in pain with the cancer. She's cancer as well. Um, so she said that they would get on to the doctor. And the doctor said no, she was very comfortable where she was. And that the reason my mother was in pain was because she was angry and agitated. Um, so I had to get on to Marymount and ask them to send over a palliative care nurse to assess her. And she said that, yes, my mother was indeed in pain and they have prescribed her now with a drug that she is to get before they touch her every time they change her. Now, I find that very alarming that one medic would say she's not in pain. It's because she's agitated oh. and angry, which was it's, clearly from what you're saying to me, an incorrect diagnosis. It, it, it has been so distressing this summer for myself and my sister. We had to get on to a lot of people to actually get the nurse from Mount Mary Mount over because the, the home was saying she was fine, that she is just agitated. They did not want to hear what we had to say. Um, so Hita finally got on to him and said, you know, this lady has complaints about her mother. They need to be addressed. Um, so then what happened was that they brought in the nurse. She said, yes, she is in pain. And she's, she prescribed this medication for her. But, again, she's still in the same position. You know, there's no um, staff in the home to care for my mother for what she has. She shouldn't be there. So you haven't managed to get her transferred um, and then then COVID came along? Yeah. The doctor refused flat out to to remove her, which I don't understand to this day. I know she has COVID, but she doesn't have the symptoms. She has, was she was tested, was she? Oh, she has, but she's asymptomatic. So she doesn't have the cough. She doesn't have the, 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 um, she doesn't have difficulty breathing and, and the fever. Exactly. So where I, I thought when she got the COVID, you know, it won't be long, you know, that way. But we're in the, still in the same position. She has COVID now 11 days and I am so, as I said, I thought this would definitely kill her because of her weight loss and everything. She's diabetic. She has a whole lot of other problems as well. But 
all her her our joints have stiffened up now and everything. Uh, she's clearly on her last legs, but we can't now move her even if we wanted to. Yeah. It's yeah. Appalling. She's the, the, yeah, and is she deemed to be at, at risk uh, a risk in the in the home now? I mean, uh, well, they have uh, they have put the people who have COVID separate. They're not near anybody else. You know, they're sectioned off from the the rest of the the public in there. Um, but my mother, as I said, she she just had um like she just has the virus, but she doesn't have the symptoms. Mm, mm. And that is the case for people. There is a, uh, I'm yeah. not sure the exact amount. Somebody was suggesting a high amount of people who are going around being uh, being categorized as on the COVID list, you know, of positives. Yeah. They're asymptomatic. No. My my sister has it as well, and she was shifted, and she struggled. She's struggling with it, breathing. But my mother is asymptomatic up in the bed, up in the, in the home. And, and, and is your sister in hospital? She is. She's in the, the mercy. She's struggling full week now uh, on oxygen. They're going to try and take her off today. How long um, has she been in? Uh, last Friday. Nobody came to trade. Uh, nobody rang the home, her, her family, for testing. It's just been an appalling, appalling week with all this going on as well. So you weren't called for a test or told no, to limit your no, movements or anything? Her children, her husband, it's, they're just now going through hell. Even though they don't have the symptoms, but they're, they're, they're going on about this app for contact tracing. There's nothing working. There's nothing working in the country. And you optimistic about your sister? I, I'm very worried about her. I really am very, I, I didn't expect this. I thought when she was shifted that it would only last, you know, it was, it was the fever. But then she said she was on oxygen Friday and Saturday struggling. And then by Sunday she said she couldn't text me anymore. She was too sick. Um, they, they changed a different oxygen and said it was great. But then she went down again on Monday and, um, well, hopefully she's fighting it and going through the process of it and the oxygen is helping her to breathe and relieving as she recovers, right? Exactly. That is what's happening. And that's exactly the way this will play out for her. We're sure. We're almost 100% yeah, sure yeah, of that. They're, yeah. they're taking her off that oxygen today to see yeah. how she... Good. Uh, good. I got onto the HSE, both the family being tested and nobody has contacted anybody. Well, that's bizarre now because they're living in the same house and everything. Yeah, that's bizarre. Even for you because you probably were in contact as well. It's just crazy. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and where oh, your mom is, there are other COVID cases as well, are there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Nobody's left in there. But I just thought I'd let you know how I'm feeling about that situation, which is separate to my mother's, you know. Um, which you have a lo- no. You have a lot of worry and anxiety in your life at the moment. Oh, it's just sister unbelievable! It's just unbelievable what's going on. Um, you have no idea. And people, I, when I hear people saying it's it's a lot of worry over nothing, it isn't. It isn't. It, it, it's really because of the really situation you have have first hand situation regarding your sister. You're saying take this seriously. Oh, God, it's so, yeah, exactly, exactly. Please, please be aware of what you're doing because you have no idea what it can do to somebody in a matter of a day or two. All right? Okay, okay. And and uh, listen, 
our thoughts are with you with regards to your sister and and indeed your ma'am. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Back after the break, one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 1850 Red FM. Last bit of business, and I will catch up on more texts and emails tomorrow. My apologies if you've been in touch with me. I'll do my best to get through as many as I can tomorrow. But the last word goes to Josephine and her teddy. Josephine, good morning. Good morning to you, Neil. No, you're seventy two, and your teddy, whose name is Teddy is older than you, so he's got to be, what, 74, 75, maybe more? Well, I suppose 73, 74, 75, I okay. don't know. So I like all of us, so, anyway. so like all of us, as we get a little bit old, we need bits and pieces replaced and fixed, and you send Teddy to France for what? I send him to Limoges. He was missing an eye, and he was missing a hand, and he was missing a foot. They were leather in those days, right? Where did, where did his hand, eye, and foot go? That's over the years. <laughs> over the years. I suppose probably the dog, when we had a dog at home as well, maybe chewed him up. But anyway, he's so, been like that now for many, many years. So you sent him over for surgery and they fixed him I all did. up and sent him back to you, but he's gone missing. He, well, he's not missing because I've got a tracking number. But he arrived in Dublin on the 16th of September at 0356. Yeah. He arrived in Cork on the 28th of September and I've been tracking him since. He's in Toker um sorting office. Sorting office. DSO. Yes, yes, that place. I spoke to a man on the 6th of October and said, "Look, I'll take a taxi down. Can I please pick up my teddy?" <laughs> oh no, he's on the way to Little Island. I said, but if I'm in Bishopstown, it'd be easier to come to Bishopstown than go to Little Island. <laughs> so where is he, he now? God knows. He He's hasn't a- been updated since the 2nd of October. So he went to France, came back from France, went to Dublin, came from Dublin to Cork, um, ended up in Toker. He's certainly on his travels. If Teddy could talk, he'd have something to say on the matter. Well, I'm very worried now because he loved his time in, in France. He loved the wine. He got great food. She couldn't send him back in the Brown Thomas box. She, she had to get a bigger box for him. And now he's probably either quarantined or he's starving to death. <laughs> and Teddy's been all over the world with you, hasn't he? All through your life Teddy's, since you were yeah, a child, Teddy's is it? Kenya, yep. Teddy's lived in Kenya. Teddy's lived in Chelsea. Teddy's lived in Switzerland. Teddy's lived in Dublin. Teddy's lived everywhere. <laughs> but now he's on his own in Cork, <laughs> missing his mummy. Dreadfully missing his mummy. Amazing so, that you managed to keep him safe, well, apart from the odd leg and arm and stuff like that, for 72 uh, years. He went very skinny. He went very skinny. <laughs> and I'm dying to see him now. He needs to she put on a bit of weight. Picture. Yeah, she wanted to send me a picture. I said, no, 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 don't send me any pictures. I want to see him first. So and the lady that did him, she's in contact with me daily. She doesn't understand the system at all. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.